Welcome to this special clinical investigator think tank on renal cell carcinoma. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We gathered six clinical investigators, Drs. Robert Figlin, Thomas Hudson, David McDermott, Robert Mozer, Walter Stadler, and David Quinn to discuss and debate key clinical research developments in the field and what it means to practice. We asked the faculty also to present cases from their practice to better understand current algorithms. And to begin, Dr. Hudson presented a woman with one of the most asked about clinical scenarios in the disease, the patient who presents with a primary renal cell cancer and metastatic disease. So early January, I had a 63-year-old white woman who came into my office for evaluation, and she was found to have a 10-centimeter right renal mass in multiple bilateral pulmonary nodules, about approximately 10 that could be visible on CT scan, that was found on workup of dysfunctional uterine bleeding that had been present for approximately two months. So did somebody feel the mass, or did you have pain? No, no, she just had dysfunctional uterine bleeding. So she went to her PCP with some you know, vaginal urinary bleeding issue, and a CT scan was ordered. And that's where the mass and the, you know, the CT gets half the upper lungs and they saw pulmonary nodules and was referred in for consideration of therapy at that point. And did she have any symptoms either from the primary or the METs? No. And you know, I think it really hallmarks what we see nowadays is that patients are often diagnosed with their asymptomatic kidney tumor on workup of other, what's felt to be non-related issues. They'll get an imaging study done and find something. So the dysfunctional uterine bleeding, whether it was truly dysfunctional uterine bleeding or whether it was urinary contamination and the thought that she was bleeding in her urine from the kidney tumors is not clear, but she was otherwise asymptomatic. So Dr. Figlin, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you think through the patient presenting with a primary and metastatic disease and what the key factors are in terms of determining how you're going to proceed. Yeah, I'm happy to. And it's a little bit different in 2013 than it was even a year ago because of some clinical trial opportunities for exactly that person. So if we talk about it from the perspective of non-clinical trials, good performance status patients who have a primary tumor in place that is surgically resectable either through laparoscopic, robotic, partial, or full nephrectomy, and has measurable distant disease that would be amenable to systemic therapy, I think I would approach and approve and agree with the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy prior to systemic therapy. So Dr. Stadler, can you describe a situation where you might go to systemic therapy first? I was kind of flashing on colon cancer, and there this issue comes up all the time. Patient presents with an asymptomatic primary but metastatic disease. And there, if there's a lot of METs and the patient's symptomatic from the METs, they often start out with systemic therapy. What about in renal cell? I think it's really quite similar. Those patients that are symptomatic have systemic symptoms, have more poor prognostic features. We tend to treat with systemic therapy first, if for no other reason than to, in essence, try to see what will happen with this patient over the next couple of months. Many of these patients will do poorly, and we hate to you know, subject them to a major surgery that then they never get to systemic therapy because of the poor prognostic features. The other situation where this comes up is in patients with very 
locally advanced disease, those that have extensive metastatic disease, you know, possible invasion into the liver, extensive retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy. Those kind of patients, we tend to say, let's give a little bit of systemic therapy first prior to initiating a big surgery. I guess one question that I had even with the asymptomatic patients is, what role do you feel is for biopsy prior to the nephrectomy? Do you think that that's important to look for some of these rare tumor, non-clear cell cancers prior to the nephrectomy, or do you not bother? Yeah, so it's pretty clear in our minds that patients undergoing systemic therapy for cancer, you have to have a tissue diagnosis of cancer. So those that are otherwise going to go to nephrectomy where you don't have to do an extra procedure, you'll get that tissue at the time of nephrectomy. Those patients where you think you're going to give neoadjuvant or something other than cytoreductive nephrectomy, we would absolutely biopsy that, confirm the diagnosis, not only for the other histologic subtypes, but to have the conversation with the patient that this is what you have, this is what we're doing, and this is where we're going. Dr. Mozer, there are not too many papers out there looking at this issue, but we did see this one study you were involved with looking at patients presenting with metastatic disease at your institution. Can you comment very briefly on what you saw there? Yeah, this was a retrospective study from patients who underwent a nephrectomy at Sloan Kettering in which the nephrectomy was done in the setting of metastatic disease. So it was a cytoreductive nephrectomy. And the point of the paper was to see if we could predict complications or the rate of complications according to the features of the patient who was undergoing the cytoreductive nephrectomy with the idea that selecting the proper patient is important. And my own stance is that I'm a proponent for cytoreductive nephrectomy, but I think it's important to select the proper patient. And one of the situations that we want to avoid is particularly now that there's effective systemic therapy is a patient undergoing a cytoreductive nephrectomy and then having a complication so that he can never go on to get the effective systemic therapy. And so in this paper, we found that patients with a low performance status were the ones that were most likely to suffer a complication in the perioperative period. The analysis was looked at different ways. It was looked at by age, by performance status, and also by the MSKCC risk group and the factors that predicted a more likely chance of a severe complication were either poor risk by the MSKCC criteria, the elderly patient, or performance status. And of those, the performance status seemed to be the most important. And I guess we should point out that these people are all managed at Memorial. And I was kind of surprised, Dr. McDermott, in terms of the rate of complications. It was not insignificant. How do you go about identifying patients who should go for surgery or not go for surgery? Is it just performance status? Is it whether the performance status is deteriorating because of the tumor as opposed to comorbidities? How do you think through this issue? Well, it's something we struggle with on a regular basis. I think this paper, even though it's retrospective, single center sort of helped us sort of confirm what we had been doing in Boston. We sort of, based on our prior experience, came up with the Sloan Kettering poor risk group as folks we wouldn't take to the operating room if they presented in this situation. And this paper sort of provides some evidence that that may be the right thing to do to exclude those patients. I think it's important to remember that while we think cytoreductive nephrectomy adds a survival advantage for the typical patient, that advantage is relatively small. That advantage was obtained in the era where we didn't have active drugs. Now that we do, it may not be as large or it may not exist altogether. So it's part of it is looking at the patient, their interests, their clinical presentation, being honest about 
you know, what you can expect with an operation. But in the community, people have gone from not operating at all on these people to operating on everyone. So we need clear guidelines, and this kind of work sort of gives you help on you know, how to decide who to operate on and who not to operate on. Dr. Figlin? My only comment is to give some historical perspective, and that is that exactly as David points out, urologists and urologic oncologists have taken the liberty of extending the original observations of cytoreductive nephrectomy and interferon to a population that was never in the original series. The original series was good performance status patients, ECOG 0 or 1. So the finding by the memorial group that people that are not ECOG 0 or 1 or the observations in our practices that the outcomes may not be optimal has been an extension of the reductive nephrectomy literature from the old days in the 80s to a time when we have no definitive evidence. So I think where I come down is exactly in this retrospective analysis, and that is be wary of the poor performance status patient with a primary tumor in place and metastatic disease because if survival is your goal, the nephrectomy's role in that survival has never been demonstrated. Well, we know from surveys we've done of investigators that you all probably get emails every day asking questions about situations like this. And I think the one thing I kind of conclude listening to you all is they need to understand this is not necessarily a simple decision. And it's not necessarily clear that every single patient needs surgery or not surgery. It's an individualized decision. And again, before you talk about what first-line therapy she got, I'd like to go around the room and ask you all, what would you be thinking about in this lady? Okay. So she underwent a right nephrectomy, and it was a laparoscopic nephrectomy, and the pathology showed clear cell, firm in grade 2, with no sarcomatoid features, and was a T3 tumor with renal vein involvement. And just out of curiosity, how long was she in the hospital and did she have any problems with It was a f about three to four day hospital course. She did really well. So the usual traditional course after a laparoscopic procedure is a day or two of pain and then patients tend to do pretty well. So I think most of our you know, academic institutions tend to have a relatively short hospital stay time unless there's a complication. And how long after the surgery were you kind of ready to get started with systemic therapy? Usually I wait a good three to four weeks. In fact, my real practice, to be honest, is to repeat imaging studies sometime around the four to six week period of time post-op. And that's very useful for me as we were talking earlier about trying to individualize therapy and even trying to make decisions about who do you intervene aggressively with and who not. Knowing the tempo of the disease, how the biology of the disease is playing out is very useful. So this lady was identified with metastatic disease up front Knowing how fast her residual disease is growing is very useful for a variety of reasons. To know is she going to be a subsite that has more poor outcome, rapidly progressing disease, in which you're going to go a different therapeutic path. Is she going to have more indolent disease? For patients with small volume disease, we often will watch them for a period of time before intervening. And that was actually the first question I wanted to kind of poll you all about. And again, watch and wait is a concept that oncologists hear about in a number of different situations. But before I get your take specifically in this lady, again, where were the METs and when you did the post-op imaging, what was the difference or had it changed? So the metastatic site she had up front was these pulmonary nodules that were picked up on her original CT scan. And then her six-week post-op restaging scan showed kind of a mixed pattern to these pulmonary nodules. I mentioned there was probably at least 10 visible ones. Some of them were calcified. There were really three dominant lesions, though they were in all different lobes, so you couldn't you know, 
theorized. Have they gotten bigger? Yes, so the three dominant ones had grown by five to seven millimeters in a period of time that was somewhere around eight weeks. In what situations would you consider watch and wait? And in a patient you want to treat, specifically this patient, how would you sort through the options? Let me just say that the largest lesion, so the three dominant ones grew five to seven. Others, you know, minimal change. Some actually looks completely stable and some were calcified, so you wonder, are they really cancerous or not? But the largest was a right upper lobe lesion that now was 1.5 centimeters. I mean, for a lot of these patients, you know, the most difficult conversation, but I think that the most important conversation at the beginning really is the conversation of waiting a little bit. There's very little data that starting with any of these VEGF or mTOR targeted agents that starting, quote, earlier has a survival benefit versus starting later. So I think it's very important for patients to understand that these drugs, although oral, have real toxicities. And we like to talk about targeted agents, but I'm not convinced that these targeted agents have any less toxicity than our, quote, cytotoxic agents and often typically have more. So I think that patients have to understand that, and they have to understand that sometimes these disease can be very indolent and grow very slowly. And if they're asymptomatic, I'm not going to make them feel any better with one of the agents, and it's not clear that I'm going to necessarily make them live longer. So how about watch and wait in this lady, and how about watch and wait in this lady if she'd had no change on her scan? I think in either case, I think I would watch and wait. And the other thing that I would do, especially if she's young and in good shape, no cardiopulmonary problems, this is also the time to start thinking about high-dose IL-2. It remains one of you know, our only you know, curative therapies or potentially curative therapies. It's not for everybody. Not everyone chooses it. But I think this is the time to consider it. If she were willing to consider it, would you go ahead and send her at this point or watch her? I would send her at this point. Dr. McDermott, how would you think through this case? Uh, similar thoughts to Walt. I think it's a hard conversation to have with a patient who's got growing lesions that they should wait, mm -hmm. although you can make an argument that if you're going the targeted therapy route, the VEGF tour therapy direction, by starting therapy, you're just starting the clock to when they're eventually going to become resistant. And if the goal is to help them to live as long as possible with a good quality of life, you know, observation makes a lot of sense. The only two areas where we don't recommend observation off the top are one, if they're interested in immune therapy, and we certainly have a bias, some would say too much of a bias towards immune therapies and IL-2, because as Walt mentioned, there's a small but real chance of a remission of their cancer. They might do better when they have less disease burden, so that would be a reason to start sooner. The other reason to start sooner is they were interested in clinical trials, particularly immune therapy clinical trials. And Bob mentioned a couple earlier with vaccine approaches that are interesting, not yet proven, obviously. We have a similar small trial at our place. Those are the types of things we would talk to people about early on. But in the case of the vaccine trials, you have to have that conversation before you take the tumor out of the patient. Dr. Mutzer? And my tendency is to try and hold off as long as possible before I start targeted therapy so that patients who are asymptomatic with small volume pulmonary disease, I tend to advocate surveillance. But I think that it's a personal decision the patient has option. Some patients, they prefer to avoid medication for as long as possible. They're concerned that it's gonna interfere with their lifestyle. So for those patients there, accept that approach. On the other hand, there's some patients who when they're diagnosed with metastatic cancer, they want to take a very proactive approach and start medication immediately. So I think that part of it is an individual decision by the patient. But just to be clear, in this patient where 
even though it wasn't very major progression, you could see progression in six weeks. You would watch her? I think that this patient kind of falls right on the fence. You know, I think that they're asymptomatic pulmonary disease, but you're correct, it's progressing. So this patient, if I was to advocate surveillance, I would probably tell them to follow up with one more CT scan, and if it continues to show progression, then that's the time to start systemic therapy. And I think that also often gives the patient some time to kind of accept this and accept the approach that they are gonna be starting a systemic therapy for their cancer. Dr. Figlin. So I agree with most of that. I would take a bit of a different approach. I mean, I would do exactly what Tom has done and that's repeat the scans for baseline post cytoreductive nephrectomy. What I would be looking for would be looking for stable disease to make a watch and wait approach. With Furman grade two, I actually would have expected a stable disease six to eight weeks later because they tend to grow more indolently. I'm a bit surprised that even with a Furman grade two, this person has a five to seven millimeter growth. Could I just clarify, is there reproducibility in Furman staging, particularly coming in from the community? Yeah, I think the answer to that is yes. And as long as you understand that the reproducibility is within grades, so Furman grades one and two are very reproducible. Furman grades three and four are very reproducible. Sometimes there's difficulty between those two groups of patients that one needs to be aware of. And also be aware that sometimes pathologists in the community talk about the most common Furman grade whereas at an academic center, our pathologists talk about the worst Furman grade. So if you have 5% Furman grade three or four and 80% Furman two, we would call that a Furman three or four. I wanna get back about the issue of what to do with this lady, but first for the people who are listening as opposed to watching, they couldn't see Dr. Hudson smile when you were talking about Furman status. So I wanna know what he was thinking. I agree with Bob. So, you know, the challenges that we face in kidney cancer, which is, you know, as a kidney cancer doctor, I'll say I don't think it's rare because I see so much of it, but it's certainly not as common as others, and we do see a large difference in pathologic expertise, and so I do think you can get into a situation like that. So there's been a lot of data that's existed. Bob's been involved in the generation of some of that data at his time at UCLA, looking at firm and grading as predictors of how people are going to do, but looking at the patient and how they're doing is what I tend to use more reliably in my practice, which is more community-based than the others at this table. So let's get back to this lady and in a second. I also want to get your take on what your first line therapy would be when the time comes, what sounds like might be fairly soon. But Dr. Figlin, any other thoughts you would observe her and then what? No, I, so in this patient, the challenge, as Bob Mozart pointed out, is they always ask the following question. Okay, if I'm observed, how much does it have to grow for me not to be observed? And we always have a hard time putting numbers on that because there's no data in the literature to support, well, if it grows two millimeters, you should not start, but if it grows five millimeters, you should. So in my own practice for this patient, I would have started. And that's because I think a five to seven millimeter growth over six to eight weeks post-nephrectomy is telling me about the biology of the cancer, and I would have had that conversation. And what options would you have discussed with this patient? And if she said, what do you think I should do? What would you have said? Yeah, so going around the table, we would have talked about the role of observation and watchful waiting. We certainly would have talked about the role of high-dose interleukin-2 and the risks and benefits. She sounds like an ideal candidate. We would talk about the role of a targeted agent like a sunitinib or a pizopinib, and we talk about the role of a clinical trial for clinical trials that are in the previously untreated patient population. 
in the community without a clinical trial option, I think the community physician would be best served by at least having that patient have a conversation with an IL-2 center to understand the risks and benefits. And if the person chose that or didn't choose that, you could go down that path. If it was in the community and they didn't want high-dose interleukin-2 and the inherent risk and benefit, then in my own practice, I would start sunitinib. And why sunitinib as opposed to pizotinib? Yeah, so in my own practice, and I know that's a question that we're going to have a conversation about, long experience, a spectacular support staff, including my nurses that have used it for years and years, novel approaches in terms of schedule changes that offer me the opportunity to maintain dose with a schedule change as opposed to a dose modification. So I become very comfortable in that space with that drug in this space, and that's what I begin with. So I want to just tease out as we go around the table everybody's perspective on this question, particularly the first line question. Dr. Figlin, just to finish out now, your thoughts about this were based on her age, lack of symptoms, et cetera. What kind of situation, if any, would prompt you to use something else, and specifically either bevacizumab interferon, serafinib, or temsorolimus? So in her, I view her as good performance status, intermediate risk because she presented with a primary tumor in place using MSKCC or Danny Hang criteria. And for me, absent an IL-2 consideration or a clinical trial, a TKI would be the first choice. And then it's which TKI do I have the most experience with, which TKI do I feel produces the robust benefit over the long term that I can give her. And I talk about pizopinib and sunitinib with her and we then make that decision together. My recommendation would be sunitinib. And I really don't use very much bevacizumab and interferon any longer, primarily because of the interferon toxicity. And what about temsorolimus? Could you describe a patient where that would be your first light therapy? So it gets a little more complicated. Temsorolimus certainly is an agent that's commercially available in the previously untreated patient population who has what is called poor prognostic features, which this patient does not poor prognostic features, multiple sites of disease, poor performance status, changes in lab. But we now have further information that even the TKIs work well in that setting. So although Temsorolimus was approved in that setting, we now have further data that supports the use of a TKI in that setting as well. So getting back to this patient, Dr. Quinn, what are your thoughts in terms of watch and wait and choice of first-line therapy? So what I'd be saying to this patient is that if we're not going to treat her now, that we need to watch her closely. We have a clinical trial that we're doing with Cleveland Clinic and Johns Hopkins looking at patients that are not treated. And it's essentially got a scanning regimen that's fairly reasonable and it allows us to hopefully in time look at the biology of these patients and how they progress and what we think progression is. But I certainly would talk to her about immunotherapy, either one of the novel agents or high-dose interleukin-2, because that could be a game-changer for her. And then if it's standard targeted therapy, I'd certainly go with a VEGF TKI. I don't think it matters that much which one you use. The differences between them may not be that great. And it's a question of experience and being able to manage the side effects in your practice setting. So in your practice setting, what would this patient likely have received? Sunitinib, yeah. And you know, you brought up the issue of watch and wait and also the trial with Cleveland Clinic. And I was interested too about the concept of what I would call treatment holidays. I don't know if you necessarily call it that, but 
I think there's a study out there looking at that, and I'm just kind of curious, is that a strategy that you employ in your practice, just holding off therapy, even if the patient's tolerating well and giving them a break? After they've started, we have patients that have very major responses. They're almost complete responses. And in that setting, each time you see one of these patients, you're doing a calculation of what their cost is in terms of side effects, usually chronic side effects versus disease control. And in a patient that's had a protracted period of disease control, not necessarily a major response or a major response, I think you're more inclined to say, you know, we can back off therapy and give you a holiday. And they used to go to the travel agent, now they go to Expedia. And instead of seeing the oncologist, they can see the travel agent or the the internet. Interesting. And again, you know, this has been heavily debated for a long time in colorectal cancer, and even actually if you think about it in prostate cancer with intermittent androgen deprivation, but what does it take to have you reinstitute therapy? Any regrowth or do you, you know, will you let it go for a while? I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that question. If I see a doubling in what I think is the volume of disease, that's a signal to me that the patient needs to restart. A new lesion in a particular space is also an issue. If they develop their first bone or brain met, they're obviously restarting. Otherwise, I think it's very much in the eye of the beholder, whether that's the patient or the oncologist or both. So before we hear what happened to this patient, I just wanna go back to you, Dr. Stadler, and ask you in terms of your usual initial first-line therapy, and specifically, which VEGF TKI you usually lead with? Yeah, we've had a tendency over the last year or two to lead with pazopinib. Part of that, to be honest, is a bias because we have a biomarker study, an imaging biomarker study that happens to use pazopinib more due to you know, business issues than scientific issues. So that's you know, our bias. But I think even in the non-protocol setting, I've been reasonably impressed with the data that the two drugs are relatively equivalent in regards to you know outcome and disease outcome and yet some better tolerability with azopinib. I think that the one caveat is the issue of liver toxicity is a little bit higher with pazopinib, and one has to be a little bit more careful with that. Any situations where you would shy away from using pazopinib specifically because of liver toxicity? Yeah, I think you know those patients who have other liver disease, who have a history of perhaps hepatitis, who have a history of alcohol abuse and possible cirrhosis, and those are the patients where I tend to be a little bit more careful. I want to get Dr. McDermott's take on this, but first I want to get back to you, Dr. Quinn. You said you thought it was kind of a coin flip, and I'm not sure if you were talking just about efficacy, but in your own clinical experience, do you think you can see a difference in tolerability of the two TKIs? Oh, I think you absolutely can, and I think it varies from patient to patient. There's a paradigm switch when you go from sunitinib to pazopinib, and I think most of us are using more pazopinib in the first line. It's a good drug. But the paradigm switch for the people that help us support the patients in terms of side effect management is a little different. Having them focus on perhaps fatigue, thyroid function, diarrhea, maybe some hand-foot skin reaction, and switching across and adding liver enzymes into that paradigm does require a bit of a refocus. It's not hard, but you know we're managing 50 patients. For the community oncologist who might be managing somewhere between two and five patients, educating their staff is much more of a challenge. What's a practical algorithm in terms of doing LFTs in somebody on pazopinib, Dr. Hudson? How often do you do it? 
Yeah, so thankfully this was sorted out in some of the clinical studies of the drug, so it's actually part of the package label. They've done a very good job of outlining that, so I'd refer any oncologist to that to get the actual verbiage there. But the take-home point would be that you need to check periodically the liver function tests, extend that. We used to think it would be just within the first few months, but you really need to extend that out to maybe three or four months of every two to three week LFT measurements is what the package insert recommends. And then once you get out of that window where the incidence is as highest, it would be just periodic lab testing when you see the patient in clinic. And most of us are seeing patients in clinic for office visits somewhere between four to eight week intervals. And just kind of curious, in a patient who's responded but then has LFT abnormalities, have you ever reintroduced it? Yeah, so I mean, again, usually the data that exists that I'm familiar with in the the database of about a thousand patients from the clinical trials, the LFT abnormalities developed within the first two months in most patients. In my own practice, I've seen elevations within the first month, so I haven't really gotten to that first scan yet. But what we've done is we've followed the recommendations. We've held drug, LFTs come down, we've started at lower dose. So you start at 800, usually you'd go to the 400 milligram dose. And then what I've done then is escalate up slowly getting every couple week lab chests and I've been able to get patients back up to 800 milligrams. So most patients will have that type of course. It's only the rare patient that's going to develop the severe elevations in the liver transaminases plus bilirubin that would mandate that they discontinue permanently. It reminds me of some of the discussions that have been going on in the last few months about TDM1 and breast cancer, same kind of issues. Dr. McDermott, how do you approach this issue of first-line therapy, and particularly which TKI? Well, our story is similar to Walt's. We had used mostly sunitinib early on. Over the last year or so, we've used more pazopinib for two reasons. One, we have a trial looking at ASL MRI, whether it can predict for response to these agents. So there's a sort of a scientific bias there, but also a general sense that it's a little bit easier to manage a patient on pazopinib in that the dose is consistent and the side effects are more consistent over the interval between which you see the patients. Whereas with sunitinib, their side effects are increased during certain cycles and that becomes a little bit unpleasant for a patient. It's also a little bit more challenging for them to manage their side effects with sometimes titrating their side effect medicines you know, at different points during their cycle, but essentially they're pretty equivalent drugs. So it's sort of a dealer's choice question. I think the one thing I wanted to follow up on that Tom said is if there's a person we're particularly concerned about running into problems with toxicity, either because of comorbidities or lack of motivation, we often start at a lower dose and titrate up. That's a strategy that's been employed fairly successful in the adjuvant trials where they had a lot of trouble keeping patients on full dose but you can titrate up and find that individual person's MTD more safely without, if you start at full dose in some patients, they'll feel so miserable in the first month that they'll wanna quit. And that's probably not in their interest. The other thing that Tom said that I wanted to amplify was going back up on a dose after a dose reduction is often possible three, six months later. If they're still on the drug, you can often get away with a dose later that you couldn't get away with initially with both agents. So just to clarify, you mentioned this trial of ASL MRI to predict response to VEGF TKIs and just wanted to clarify that ASL MRI is arterial spin labeling MRI. I'm curious about your clinical experience. It's one thing to see data, it's quite another thing to actually talk to people who've seen a lot of patients, specifically in terms of fatigue with these two agents. Do you think you can detect a difference? 
I don't think so. They may vary in the sunitinib cycle when the patients will feel fatigue, but the overall incidence, I'm not sure, is that much different. So, Dr. Mozer, very interested in your answer to this question. Well, I always exclusively gave sunitinib and treated lots of patients, hundreds of patients with sunitinib. I first became acquainted with pizopinib as a participant in the COMPARS trial. And my impression was that while about one out of 10 patients develop elevated liver function tests and have to stop pizopinib, the other nine out of 10 feel better over the course of their treatment with the drug with less fatigue and almost absence of hand-foot syndrome. So then when the COMPARS data became available to me, it was somewhat difficult for me to make that transition because I was so used to giving sunitinib. But I believe in the data and I think that you have to do what's best for the patient and make a change if it looks like the data for one drug favors another. So I switched over my practice and now I I give pizopinib and in my own experience, it confirms the COMPARS data where I think that in general, most patients experience a better quality of life with the pizopinib. The two side effects that my patients found particularly troublesome were fatigue and also particularly hand-foot syndrome, which interfered with a lot of their activity. And that seems to be much less common with the pizopinib. So just to clarify, the COMPARES trial reported that pizopinib had similar efficacy to sunitinib as first-line treatment of metastatic renal cell cancer, but some of the side effects, such as fatigue and dermatologic reactions, seem to be less frequent with pizopinib than with sunitinib. So let's follow up and bring us up to date on this lady. What happened? Sure. So, you know, it's nice to hear my colleagues kind of practice similar to me. It's always reassuring. So, you know, I think when a patient comes and is referred in from a community oncology practice to see me, you know, my job as the expert is to sit there and spend a little bit more time than what they would in clinic and make sure the patient understands all the treatment options and ramifications of that. And so, like my colleagues, I spent time educating her regarding the different therapies. I am a high-dose IL-2 center, so we discussed high-dose IL-2, we discussed watch and wait, we discussed VEGF TKIs and clinical trial options. She was of the mindset that she was not interested in high-dose IL-2. I usually told myself when I offered that at my institution that I would never force a patient into that treatment, which you know as a doctor we can. We can really force them down that path. I would instead inform them, tell them I think they're an appropriate candidate for it if they choose, and then give them information so they can go and read on and make their own decision. So she had been doing that. She contacted KCA. She's been on the different websites and was able to interact in support groups and realize that that was not an appropriate therapy. Watchful. What was her kind of life situation? What was she doing? You know, she has older kids. She has a couple children. They're in their mid-20s, and she's married, and she's a homemaker. What so was she, her kind of overall attitude about where things were heading, and how did that contribute to this decision about the IL-2? Well, I think she, just like most patients in this situation, newly diagnosed, worried about you know, early death, but still hoping for cure, and having to realize that the cure is most likely not an option for her, though in talking about also the uniqueness of her cancer, that she has low volume disease, several of the lesions in the lung may not even be cancerous, but will operate like they all are, but in the ability, depending on outcome, that carrot hanging there, which may be extremely rare and hardly ever we see, to do something aggressive. You know, if she had a phenomenal response to therapy and one could intervene with doing metastectomies on 
her little nodules or things. So I try to make sure my patients understand the uniqueness of their cancer. Different conversation than obviously someone that was symptomatic or had large volume disease. So I really believe in being honest with patients and allowing them to have a feeling of hope that they're going to get something meaningful out of treatment. But I clearly state the goals are always going to be quality of life driven and on survival and longevity. And so that's how we make our treatment choices. So she's indicated to me that she's, you know, like my colleagues, we talk about watchful waiting. We talk about that the real reason to change, so to start therapy, initiate therapy would be based upon significant progression. And it's all how you define significant. And so I tell patients, I use the sleep test with them, which is, you know, are you up at night worrying that you're not on therapy because your cancer is growing? Are you having an adverse quality of life just because of that? You're worrying. And she was certainly along that line. She just, you know, the thought of growing cancer in her body was just too great for her not to. So without high dose IL-2, we're in currently trial transition and there's not a trial in my geographic region frontline for her that we decided to proceed with sinidinib. And like my colleagues, I started off treatment with TKIs with a large experience with sinidinib. I've been involved in the clinical trials with pazopanib, so I have a very large experience of that. Over the past several years, I've preferentially used pazopanib as frontline therapy. It's only been recently that I've started going back to sinidinib, and I'm doing so with a little bit different thought process, and I'm using sinidinib initially on some of the emerging data from the Canadian group and from MD Anderson and Cleveland Clinic, looking at alternative dosing strategies as possibly being a way to tolerate, maintain dose intensity. Reasons that Bob Figlin gave that he still uses sinidinib, the flexibility. So in this patient, I actually chose to proceed with sinidinib, but we went with the 50 milligram four week on, two week off schedule, just to kind of, as a baseline, I haven't made that transition to just jump into the alternative dosing as the first cycle, but she developed toxicity some started to get grade three fatigue difficulty. So having that data reconfirmed at GU-ASCO this year, the retrospective data sets suggesting that patients could be on the dose 50 milligrams longer, less toxicity, potentially even hints of greater efficacy. I talked to her about that and we went with the alternative dosing two week on, one week off. And so, you know, so far she had one scan done at three months, two cycles into therapy, and she's had about a 40% or so reduction in her target three big lesions that previously had grown. She had some of her smaller pulmonary nodules that were under one centimeter in size are no longer visible. And then she has a clustering of maybe three or four of those calcified nodules, which are still stable. And so she seems to be having a partial response early into her therapy. And she's now, I think, cycle three or four into treatment. Dr. Quinn. So I was interested in Tom's statement about the Canadian data, which I think we're all interested in, where they're giving two weeks of sinitinib at the standard 50 dose and then a week off, and we're certainly working with that. But there's also other suggested regimens, two days on, one day off, sort of a continuous situation. And I'm reticent to use that because in the renal effects study that Dr. Mozart led, where we gave 37.5 continuously versus the 50 for four weeks on, two weeks off, the patients didn't seem to get as good a disease control with continuous. And I, I just wonder what people thought about that. What level of evidence do we need to use these alternative dosing strategies and which one do people use? Because community oncologists asked me about that. Dr. Mozart, what would you have done with this lady hearing what happened in the first cycle? Well, I think first I would have treated her with bisopidib. You know, I probably wouldn't have used sinitinib. And if I had used sinitinib, then I would have used it by the 4-2 schedule because there's a, 
a long history of what to do and how to dose manage patients with the 4-2 schedule based on toxicity. My feeling is kind of once you get out of that, you don't really have the rules in the background to fall back on to make adjustments in toxicity. So you would have dose reduced her and kept her on the 4-2? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Dr. Figlin, how do you approach this issue of scheduling? Yeah, I would have done exactly like Tom did. I appreciate Bob Mozer's conservative approach to using data to decide how to treat patients, but I would just say that we don't do a very good job in the kidney cancer space of rapidly asking questions and answering questions that are important for patients that might not be important for the sponsor. So although we may want an answer to the question of 4-2 versus 2-1, that may not be the question that the support mechanisms are interested in developing because at the end of the day, what's the bottom line from their perspective? It's still using their drug. And I've actually seen over the course of my career, I'm sure we all have, opportunities where the community actually informs the academic institutions about how they might want to think about delivering therapies because sometimes, in my view, we're a little bit too evidence-based, so to speak. So I would have done exactly what Tom did. I would have started at 50 milligrams, four and two, and if there was toxicity that prevented me from continuing, I would have switched quickly to maintaining dose and changing schedule. And to David's point about these alternative schedules, I mean, I think there's enough Yes, admittedly, mostly retrospective data or not controlled data out there from a variety of groups in the literature that supports the two-in-one schedule that gives me some confidence around that space. So would you do it up front? Would you start out that I, And I appreciate that, and I've not gotten yet there to that, so to speak. I still really start them out on high-level evidence, phase one-level evidence with the 50 milligrams, four and two. And the reason I've not switched to pizopinib for individual reasons is I found the capability of switching to an alternative schedule, the toxicity modifying event that allows me to maintain dose. If I did not have that, I think moving to Pizopina would have made great sense. Dr. Quinn. I think we now have choice, and with choice comes challenges. In that toxicity management paradigm, which we're talking about, if you manage one drug on a certain schedule and you have a sort of switch up that you can do, that's in quotes easy for the people that are working with you and also sometimes the patients. The paradigm with pizopinib is different and I'll switch across to pizopinib in certain situations. I have patients where when you go into the two week break, they've been on three antihypertensives and all of a sudden they're hypotensive or they have great variation in the way their thyroid responds to sunitinib, where it's actually the break's a problem. Now, a shorter break on 2-1 can help that. It's not as pronounced, but sometimes they need continuous dosing. I'm not confident with 37.5 of sunitinib each day, and I am actually confident with pizopinib each day, and I think it's a good treatment that they may still have the hypertension and the thyroid issues, but they're consistent and they're getting dosed each day. So I want to ask you kind of a very naive question. I'm going to start with Dr. Stadler, which is thinking about the biology of this disease and what we've learned about it, what's your concept right now about how anti-VEGF agents work? What's your understanding of the biology of the disease and why is this different than anti-VEGF therapy of other cancers? I think this is very different than other cancers, and it's important to recognize that, at least from the clear cell cancers, that this is a disease, it's driven by 
VHL inactivation. It's the VHL biology, it's not a VEGF biology. And VEGF is one of many factors downstream from VHL that happens to be important and that we happen to target therapeutically. That's, I think, issue number one. And that's very different than other cancers where the angiogenesis is a phenomenon of tumor growth and not a phenomenon of the direct biologic abnormality in the cancer. Could I ask you to draw that out a little bit? Because I've heard this story for years. I'm sure oncologists have. I can never tell whether people who just finished their fellowship understand stuff that I don't. But can you talk a little bit more about really what happens in terms of VHL and what the actual mechanism of anti-tumor action is? I know it's a simple question, but I'm just going to be honest well, with you, I don't understand. Well, I'm not sure any of us understand either because every time we think we understand, you know, we learn something new. That being said, the way we understand it currently is that clear cell renal cancer is defined by an inactivation of VHL or the associated VHL pathway. One of the effects of inactivation of VHL is upregulation of VEGF and as a result, therefore, of angiogenesis. So this is a tumor that's highly angiogenic from the very get-go. VHL, however, as part of the proteasome degradation pathway, has an impact on lots of different biological pathways, and VEGF is only one of them. So it has an anti-angiogenic effect, but also other anti-tumor effects. So inactivation of VHL has an angiogenic effect, but also lots of other effects. Right. That's probably the way to put it. So Dr. Mozer, I was really fascinated by your presentation at ASCO, the RECORD study. Can you talk a little bit about what was seen there and what you think it means? The intent of the trial was to investigate sequences of therapy, uh, TKI followed by an mTOR, which is the standard sequence, versus an mTOR, everolimus, followed by sinitinib. And the hypothesis was that ultimately the progression-free survival to both in sequence would be the same, and that everolimus is better tolerated and that patients would enjoy initially a better quality of life on everolimus before switching over to the more powerful TKI sinitinib. There hasn't been any trials that have looked at sequence therapy where a patient's treated on one and then goes on to a second drug. And one of the concerns that we had was regarding feasibility of the study. So the trial was designed to look at the PFS in first line for sinitinib compared to everolimus, and then the combined progression-free survival was a secondary endpoint. What we found is that in the first line, we didn't reach non-inferiority of everolimus over sinitinib. The PFS was longer for sinitinib compared to everolimus all across the board in different subgroups we looked at. There was actually a trend in survival benefit for the sequence of sinitinib followed by everolimus. And the strategy by which one patient goes from one drug and then at progression switches to another was very difficult because of dropout. When patients progressed on the sinitinib, many of them, rather than crossing over to everolimus on trial, they left the study. So I think that the lessons learned were that, at least in first line, VEGF targeted therapy more effective than everolimus. And that sort of a trial design is very challenging to conduct. 
So I could envision there might be biologic explanations that something happens when you give the VEGF TKI that has a more lasting effect or is better to happen early. I could also envision it might be more clinical that if they get delayed getting ducinitinib, the diseases progress, they're in worse shape, they don't tolerate it as well. Maybe there's other explanations, but what do you think happened there? I think that in first line, is more effective drug than Everolimus. And some of the patients on Everolimus died early on in therapy and were not able to switch over or you know, received other therapies, didn't, didn't get the sunitinib because of their medical condition or so forth. Dr. Figlin. Well, I think one must also recognize that mTOR inhibition is not as potent an antiangiogenic approach to antiangiogenesis as VEGF receptor inhibition. So if one wanted to look at this biologically and ask the question, the results are as they are, but might they be explained biologically? I think for those of us that believe that mTOR inhibition is a weaker antiangiogenic approach to, as Walter points out, an angiogenic-driven tumor, I think the results are pretty much as we might have expected biologically. And I personally have struggled a lot with understanding how mTOR inhibitors work, period. We talk about this a lot in breast cancer. A lot of your publications, Dr. Figlin, you have such great graphics with the pathways in there. But again, just at a more intuitive level, what's your understanding right now about the mechanism of anti-tumor action of mTOR inhibitors? Well, they have a dual inhibitory possibility. Inhibitory possibility one is by inhibiting the feeding of tumors through glucose uptake and other agents that tumors require to grow. A second observation with TOR inhibition is that it also has the ability to inhibit HIF. And if it inhibits hypoxia-inducible factor alpha, then as a result, it inhibits the downstream effects of HIF, one of which is angiogenesis. So those are the dual roles with which mTOR inhibition can work. And in terms of resistance to mTOR inhibitors, again, in breast cancer, we've seen some interesting things in terms of PI3 kinase mutations. Has that been looked at? in renal cell. I have to say, and we'll talk about this at probably at greater length, we talk a lot about mechanisms of resistance in kidney cancer, especially clear cell. I think that there are some pathways that I think we're interested in. I think the FGF pathway we're interested in. I think the MET pathway we're interested in because those are upregulated as a result of VEGF inhibition. So we now have molecules that are reaching the clinic to address that. But we as yet do not know, as we do in other diseases, the specific pathways by which antiangiogenics are overcome. Dr. McDermott. So the Cancer Genome Project is focused on a lot of different tumors. The data will come out, we think, this year, looking at mutations that are important for kidney cancer. And that should help give us some clues. You know, how often are these pathways mutated in individual kidney tumors, give us some new targets to go after, give us a sense of how important, in the case of the metabolism story, the TOR pathway is. It's a very complicated pathway, but we'll get more data on that subject this year. And we've heard, before we go into other comments, it's curious because the concept of next generation sequencing is being talked about in almost every corner mm -hmm. of oncology. Down the road from you, you have the foundation medicine people mm -hmm. and they have an assay foundation one out there. And you can actually order some of these tests. And, you know, in lung cancer, people are wondering whether you order it. I mean, we saw responses of BRAF inhibitors at ASCO. 
Where are we right now in terms of that becoming a clinical reality in renal cell cancer? How long do you think it'll be? Well, you can do the testing now. The question is, can you act on the result? Right. And that's the big gap. I mean, you can get tremendous amounts of information, particularly willing to pay for the testing. Most of them are not standard of care. But from much of what we learn, we don't have necessarily the information to say, let's use this drug in this patient. And that's one of the issues with the TCGA project is that while we'll have information on mutations and expression and outcome, the treatment piece is not a strong part of that project, at least in kidney cancer, and it needs to be built up going forward. Are there any targetable mutations that have been talked about in renal cell cancer that haven't been acted on yet? Probably, and Bob can talk about this because some of the more interesting data comes from a very small subset of patients at Sloan Kettering where they looked at patients who had, had great responses to TOR inhibitors versus those who had not and looked at a TSC2 mutation, I think, in a couple of patients where if you had that mutation, which is not thought to be that common, you had a profound benefit to a TOR inhibitor and TSC is thought to modulate the TOR pathway. I think Bob could speak more about that. Can you talk about that, Dr. Motzer, and how often is this mutation seen? Yeah, we did a small outlier analysis, which is really a, you know, a pilot study where we did sequencing on seven patients that were really long-term responders to mTOR with different RCC histologies. And I think in five of the seven, we identified mutations along the mTOR pathway. And some of the patients, and I think the one that's felt to be the most common, most important is in TSC1, but there were other mutations that we found in mTOR itself. And in one patient, we actually found different mutations along the mTOR pathway in different areas of the tumor, where the patient had one mutation in one part of the pathway and in an area of tumor, and another mutation in a different part of this tumor. So I think that it's a small study, outlier trial. What we're doing now is we're taking a large number of patients, probably the tumors from the record three trial, and then we're gonna analyze and sequence those for these sort of mutations. It kind of reminds me about when the EGFR mutation story got started in lung cancer. It got started with identifying some people who had really good responses, and they looked at them. How often do you see really effective responses, you know, statistically with mTOR inhibitors? Well, I mean, I think it's rare in terms of real durable responses. For the most part, for everolimus in a refractory setting, the median progression-free survival is about four to five months. There is a small group of patients that we see that have very long-standing responses, and you know this was taken from this group, but it's rare. So I think, obviously, something else has to be going on for the more kind of intermediate range response to these agents. Although I wonder, too, now we're starting to hear more about mutations that occur in 1% of lung cancer, and people are saying, well, that's a lot of people. So I'm not sure. Maybe that's going to be a trend out there in a lot of cancers. Dr. Stadler. So I think that these things are all important and relevant and highly interesting, but I think that for the practicing oncologist, one of the things to remember is that we classify these you know, VEGFR inhibitors as TKIs, and people tend to think about them in the same way as they might some of the EGFR TKIs and so forth. And it's important to remember that these VEGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors really continue to act on the stroma. There's not a mutation in the tumor itself. And so, therefore, the resistance mechanisms are not a mutational 
process within the tumor. And I think that that's a distinction. I think that's often lost because these, you know, agents are classified as TKIs and people are so used to hearing the story from lung cancer and perhaps even with CML where there are these sequential mutations in the target. This is different. That's a really good point. Dr. Hudson? I just wanted to finish on record three a little bit with some of the other findings. So I think it put, in my mind, the results put to rest this concept that mTOR inhibitors should be given frontline to all patients. There was a thought that maybe it was some benefit, it had never been studied before in patients with good and immediate risk. The second, I was really surprised to see the PFS of in the seven month range for an mTOR inhibitor. I thought that was interesting given the past phase two experience with serafinib originally at 5.5 months, but recent trials suggesting even probably better. And the most recent exidinib versus serafinib frontline trial had serafinib's PFS at 6.5 months. So it seems to beat some of our weaker VEGF inhibitors. And then third, I was very interested in seeing that it seemed that the VEGF TKIs, and this I think Bob mentioned before, there's new data with this, and this is the data that comes to mind for me, is that sinidinib does just as good or better for non-clear cell histologies than the mTOR inhibitor Everolimus did. So remember, many of the docs in the community still believe what we thought back in 2008 was that maybe there was a reason why we should be giving mTOR inhibitors to the non-clear cell histologies. And so I'll often have doctors call me or send patients in where they've told the patient that you have papillary RCC, a non-clear cell histology, you therefore get Temsorolimus as frontline therapy. And that's not necessarily true. I want to pick up on one thing you mentioned about the serafinib. Because I remember last year at ASCO, one of the discussions was showing the efficacy of serafinib in sequential trials. I mean, it might have been somebody here, which I always thought was really interesting. And I'm curious, what do you think's going on? So essentially, it seems like in trials that serafinib has been, as time's going on, is this a function of who's getting in the trials, how the drug's being used? What do you think's going on? I think all of those. So it's probably multiple influences on that. Certainly there is the effect of the comfort level of the investigator and using the medication. We've seen that across the trials that the toxicities reported in the trials seem to be getting less with serafinib suggesting that we're handling those toxicities better. And then there's the differences in the patient populations that there are these fine details between differences. They're not all exactly the same. They have slight differences in the number of nephrectomy patients. Some were all histology, some were just clear cell. And then whether they were PS0s and PS1s and all these little, these nuances in the trials that seem to matter when we do subset analyses that they do better. So I think there's probably a combination of all those that explain why we've seen this shift of PFS range from 5.5 months early on with serafinib frontline. And people have argued that that trial design was faulted, underpowered to as high as nine, 9.5 months with serafinib. So that's a big range of activity that I think can be explained by all those that we just reviewed. Final comment, Dr. McDermott. So I think we've seen big changes in the outcomes of our patients over the last 10 years, probably doubling of overall survival for the typical patient, which is exciting. I think we need to continue to look for big differences in our clinical trials to get these agents approved just from practical standpoints, but also that's what our patients are looking for is how do we make the next big leap 
I think the, as Bob mentioned, the immunotherapy VEGF story may be interesting. Certainly when you look at the bevacizumab interferon combination trial, those two drugs together seemed to get more than just an additive benefit. So maybe there's something to immunotherapy plus a VEGF inhibition strategy. And now that we have more active immunotherapies that are in some ways more tolerable than our old cytokine therapies, that those are combinations that should actively be explored. And I noticed that there are, I was kind of surprised in a way, trials looking at TKIs. I know there was, is it called Nevo now? Is that the new short term? Right. Numalumumab plus, I think, sunitinib. Is there some thinking that there's a specific immune effect of these TKIs like sunitinib, or how would this happen? Yeah, I mean, Bob Mozart's done a lot on this, so he can talk about this, but there's data both in mice and in humans that certain TKIs may have some positive effects on the immune system. So they may dampen the effect of regulatory T cells, which are there, we think, to shut off an immune response. They also may have a role at checking the activity of these so-called myelo-derived suppressor cells, which come from the bone marrow to the tumor and drive resistance. And that's become the basis. That preliminary data has become the basis of the sunitinib plus vaccine combinations that are now in phase three trials. So that's in part steering people to say, well, if this might do something for a vaccine strategy, maybe we should try it with a checkpoint inhibitor. But we have obviously a lot more research to do to see if these things are tolerable and effective. Bob could probably add more to that. Bob Figlin. Bob Figlin, yeah. Yeah, I think that you know both ourselves and the Cleveland Clinic Group, Jim Finke, have looked at whether or not some of the TKIs have immunomodulatory effects different than their VEGFR inhibition. And I think the consensus is yes, that as David pointed out, effects on T-regulatory cells, effects on myelodrive suppressor cells, make them an ideal candidate to think about combining with other immunomodulatory agents. That's certainly the background for the Amatic study and for the Argos vaccine study, one using an off-the-shelf HLA-restricted peptide vaccine, the other using personalized immunotherapy generated from a person's own immune system. All right, I want to move on now, talk about more cases and papers. And I thought, Dr. Quinn, we could start with your patient, the 67-year-old woman. So this is a 67-year-old lady who originally presented in 2007 and had a nephrectomy which was a T3A nuclear grade two out of four, who declined an adjuvant therapy trial, the ASSURE trial at that time. She recurred in 2010 with some lung lesions, which progressed on a subsequent scan. And then she was treated with sunitinib for a period of time until she progressed with a new bone met in her scapula in early 2012. And she then got stereotactic radiation and a bisphosphonate. And she progressed subsequently to that in the lung within about two months. Could I just maybe hold off for a second there and maybe go around the table a little bit in terms of the question of how you approach second-line therapy in a patient who's gotten sunitinib or pizopinib up front and what you might be thinking in a patient like this. Dr. Stadler? So for patients who have been on a, you know, VEGFR TKI for quite some time, and who have progressed, and this time, you know, it's a clear progression. I mean, there's new lesions. This isn't just a sort of slow growth. I think that the question that always comes up is, do I try a second or a different VEGFR TKI, or do I move to an mTOR inhibitor? And it's not necessarily clear to me what the right thing to do is. There is a tendency, based on some of the randomized data, to move to a second VEGFR TKI. 
I'm always a little bit cautious because uh, I think as we may want to talk about here is that those randomized trials, the definition of progression may have been a little bit different than this kind of progression where the patient has true new lesions. So sort of generally speaking, what are the agents that you use in this situation? I think that, you know, the agents that I think about in terms of a second VEGFR would be, you know, either pazopinib or excitinib. And Dr. McDermott, what are your thoughts in terms of second-line therapy and how you decide between a second VEGF TKI and Everlimus? Well, I have similar thoughts to Walt. I mean, there's not great head-to-head data yet with the two approved second-line agents. We don't have a comparison of Everlimus and Exitinib. It would be good if we did, and we could look at the relative value. So we can only infer from other trials and how to use these agents. Generally, if someone has tolerated a VEGF drug and has gotten a benefit, we often will follow with a second VEGF drug, whereas if they had grown quickly through a VEGF strategy or didn't tolerate it well, we might switch to a different class of agents. But most patients during their course will see both strategies, and I'm not sure it matters exactly what you do second, because eventually if they didn't get a TOR inhibitor second, they're going to eventually get a TOR inhibitor as part of their course. The other thing I would say as well is we often want to completely exhaust treatment one before we go on to treatment two. So we'll see what David did here, but oftentimes if someone has a bone met and it's isolated, you'll treat it with radiation and surgery and continue them on the drug. You might add a bisphosphonate. And that brings into a question of our patients are living so much longer. We didn't have these problems 10 years ago. You have to look for them. You have to be on the lookout for both bone and brain mets, not necessarily as routine scanning, but at least once a year in these people who are living longer, you sort of want to try to get a sense of, is there going to be a problem in the bone that you may not be aware of initially? So we do regular imaging of bones once a year. Dr. Moser, how do you think through second-line therapy in a patient who received the VEGF TKI up front? Well, I think the first established paradigm for benefit was Everolimus based on the record one trial of the Everolimus versus placebo. So for the most part in the past, patients who progressed on sinitinib or pazopinib, I switched them over to Everolimus. I think that one of the attractive features of that to me was that it's a different mechanism of action. And also, I think you know many patients seem to tolerate Everolimus quite well. That's kind of come into question now a little bit because of the fact that we do have multiple options. I mean, I think other options for patient are exitinib or even serafinib remains an option. And I think if as long as the patients can receive three lines of therapy, I'm not so sure that it differs whether they get mTOR or VEGF targeted therapy or second or third. And I kind of base it upon their tolerability and their comorbidities. But the one study that has kind of raised the question for me is Tom Hudson's study where the temsorolimus was compared to serafinib and the group that got the sequential TKI lived longer than the temsorolimus group. So although you can't make a direct comparison or extension to everolimus versus exitinib, it raises the question for me that, you know, continued VEGFR inhibition is important for patients to maximize survival. You mentioned exitinib and serafinib, and you mentioned earlier you often start with pazopinib. Will you ever follow pazopinib up with sunitinib? I haven't because of the fact that there are other drugs out there which have been studied that have provided evidence in second or third line therapy, so I usually choose one of those. You also mentioned serafinib. Could you describe a patient or a situation where you might think about that second line? 
Well, I think that the AXIS trial showed that the two drugs, exitinib and serafinib, have a different toxicity profile. There was a longer PFS associated with exitinib compared to serafinib, but it wasn't dramatic in the patients who progressed on sinitinib, and the overall survival was the same. So I think that the point from the ODAC meeting of that trial was that you know both of these drugs have activity in this disease. They both ultimately resulted in a similar survival. And so they both kind of remain treatment options with distinct toxicities. So again, what kind of patient might you use serafinib in? I think a patient who hypertension is a particular problem with, or diarrhea is a particular problem with, those two toxicities seem to be more pronounced with exitinib. And I think, again, it gets to the point of individualized therapy to the patient. So Dr. Hudson, in terms of your own clinical practice, how do you approach this question? I think, you know, I agree with my colleague's approach. I think this is the million dollar question always is what do you follow up in second line with? And so I think we kind of have mixed, we have our clinical experience. We have a sparsity of randomized trial data to guide us into choosing VEGF sequence versus mTOR. And so the data that exists in the frontline setting and the poor risk is with IV temsorolimus. So that's where I would be using that. I tend not to use it later on in lines of therapy. If I'm in the second, third, fourth, fifth line setting, I'd be using the Everolimus product. There are rare situations where I would give the IV temsorolimus, but that would be in a patient that had not had an mTOR inhibitor. They attempted Everolimus, but there was some reason they couldn't tolerate it. One obvious would be I've had patients that have had feeding tubes and can't be crushed or things like that. But so I think it gives you an alternative in that setting, but I think your default should be data-driven and you should consider them in the appropriate place. I always thought it was kind of unusual about the fact that temsorolimus was used in poor risk disease. Was there any biology to that in terms of why it might work preferentially there, Dr. Stadler? So, I mean, I think that, you know, this is an interesting story where sometimes what becomes the standard of care is driven by perhaps not so much science. And the temsorolimus example here was that there was some preliminary data from the phase two studies that there might be a preferential response in patients with poor prognosis, but it was very limited data. I mean, but why? And there was no biology behind that. And in fact, the phase three trial focusing on poor prognosis patients was designed in an effort to get to the endpoint, the survival endpoint, more rapidly so that the sponsor can get it onto the market more rapidly. That strategy backfired because there were insufficient poor prognosis patients with a sufficient performance status to actually conduct the trial that the trial actually went slower than anticipated. And that's where the entire data for poor prognosis came from. And the entire data from the you know, non-clear cell population really came from a retrospective analysis of that study, and that data was based on what was put into the database, and I actually had the opportunity to look at some of those pathology reports, and a lot of the pathology reports that were, quote, non-clear cell, where someone did an FNA on a renal cancer that said it was an adenocarcinoma not otherwise specified, and therefore it became a non-clear cell. So there's a lot of you know, sort of details behind these trials that then have been translated into standards of care that may not necessarily be so. 
So let's get back to practical decision-making. Dr. Figlin, how do you think through second-line therapy in a patient who's gotten a first-line VEGF TKI? Yeah, I think that my colleagues have summarized it, but let me just put a little bit of a different spin on it. I think we all recognize that trials are designed to answer clinical trial questions in populations that may not necessarily be what people in practice see all the time. And I think what we have to remember is, is the extension to which what we're practicing is mirrored by the selectivity of the clinical trial population. So if I can be so bold, you know, it seems to me odd that one would think that a cancer, as Walter pointed out, that is driven by a VHL abnormality, an upregulation of HIF and angiogenesis, would somehow not need angiogenic inhibition across the paradigm of its treatment. If this was prostate cancer, you would not talk about leaving the androgen receptor as a target of your benefit. And in fact, we've revisited that over the last couple of years with better AR inhibitors. So I think that when you take the two sets of data in my mind, which is the 404 data that Tom presented, which is serafinib versus tempsirolimus, with serafinib having a survival advantage, and the AXIS trial in the second-line setting after prior VEGF-TKI treatment, in my practice, I generally treat with a second TKI targeting the VEGF pathway. Which one? And because of the AXIS trial, I use Ixitinib. I'm going to ask Dr. Hudson in a second to review that data, but can you just follow up with what happened with the patient? So just to make it clear, when we were irradiating the patient, we left her on sunitinib with the intent of continuing that. It's just that she progressed and got a little bit of hemoptysis afterwards. So she went on to Everlimus, standard dose, and she had that for a little over a year. And then she developed increase in the size of her lung lesions, but also three new liver lesions. And she remained well. ECOG status was still zero. No other problems. How did she do during the Everlimus? She did well. She had minor mucositis, which was managed topically, and she had some asymptomatic changes in her lungs. She had asymptomatic pneumonitis, which we did not treat, but we could see on scan. Yeah, I noticed that. So you continued treatment in spite of that? Yeah, so she had grade one changes without any symptoms. And if patients have some minor symptoms, we'll add some prednisone which will suppress that. It's when they become significantly symptomatic into grade three where you need to assess what's going on. You may need to give steroids. You may want to break therapy. And if you think they could have an infection, they need to be actively investigated. That doesn't happen very often, but the mTOR group of drugs have some immunosuppression as part of their activity. They're derived and homologs of serolimus. And so we have seen a handful of infections in the lung. And if patients get sick, they need to be actively investigated. It doesn't happen very often, but it's important. So Dr. McDermott, do you agree with this overall algorithm that was just described in terms of dealing with pulmonary toxicity with Everolimus? Sure, you have to be on the lookout for it. It's not something we see often, but you have to educate the patient in particular to report symptoms. It can be challenging with people who have lung metastases to separate what's lung toxicity from what's disease progression, and oftentimes you don't settle that until you see a scan. So the key is education and not treating through worsening symptoms until you do a evaluation. You also have to get, as David alluded to, sometimes you have to get a pulmonary consult to try to separate what's infection from what's drug toxicity.
Dr. Motes, are there any comments about mucositis with Everolimus? This is a huge topic in breast cancer nowadays because they're just starting to get used to the drug. There they use a lot of preemptive corticosteroid mouthwashes, et cetera. How do you approach the issue of prevention and management? Well, what we found to be the most effective are the steroid mouthwashers, and there's also a paste that they can buy to actually put it over the lesion. So that seems to be quite effective in managing the stomatitis. It also seems like the, from, and I don't treat breast cancer, but it seems like the stomatitis may be a little bit more of an issue in the breast cancer population than in the kidney cancer population for reasons that I don't quite understand. You know, I hear a lot in breast cancer, again, they're just kind of getting used to the drug about dose reductions or holding it for even minimal mucositis. It seems like a little bit more conservative than what I've heard from you all. What does it take for you to hold the drug? If it's impairing the patient's ability to take nutrition, then I always hold the medication. So I just want to quickly get your take on what you think maybe your next therapy might be in this lady who's gotten sunitinib and now progressing on Everolimus. Just real quick in two seconds, Dr. Stadler, what would you be thinking? I'd go back to a VEGFR inhibitor. Which one? Well, she had sunitinib. Exitinib is, you know, has some data, so I would go back to How about uh, sunitinib again? You could go back to sunitinib again, which would probably work just as well. I think that a prolonged break from VEGFR inhibition probably resets the stroma in some way. And we have a subset of patients who seem to do well after a break, you go back to the same sort of VEGFR inhibitor. So Dr. McDermott, what do you think your most likely agent would be in this situation? No, I agree, VEGF is king. I would go back to Exitinib and it's gonna, probably gonna work given the time the person was on Everolimus, which was an impressive amount of time. The drug will be active. So what happened with this lady? We discussed with her going on the GOLD study, which was a study of divitinib versus serafinib, and we discussed it with her when she went on to mTOR inhibition. Unfortunately, the study closed because it's completed accrual. So she was interested in serafinib, exitinib, and she was also interested in doing clinical trial, and she went on to a phase 1-2 study that we're just completing of bevazuzumab and bortezomib. And she has just had her first scan after 12 weeks and has a complete response. Wow. Mm. So... Bevacizumab and bortezomib. Hmm. What do we know about bortezomib and RCC? Not a lot. There were two studies done, one by Dr. Stadler's group and one by Dr. Moat's group, and there was some stable disease in those studies. And I think a partial response in one patient at Memorial, but that happens at Memorial Science Kettering. There's hmm. always someone who has a partial response. And so we looked at this in combination, in part because we were interested in toxicity, and that's what the study is. We put about 50 patients on over many years, looking at two different dose schedules of bortezomib, and we're getting to a point where we have our endpoint. But we have patients, now a handful, who've been treated on this regimen, which is usually obviously not given in the first or second line, who've gone beyond two years. And that may be just VEGF inhibition, because I think that you can see that with BEV on its own. I wouldn't tout the combination. We'll look at the results when they come through. Just to make the point, I sort of paraphrased the history before, but this lady had a 90% reduction in her pulmonary lesions on sunitinib. And so she is selected out. She is one of the patients that Bob Figlin was talking about who's going beyond 40 months. And she certainly has, in my book, what I therapeutically file away in that patient is she's got a very active VEGF pathway 
and it's going to be worth targeting in the future. She also may have some aspects of mTOR that are interesting, but I don't think she's a really big responder. She stayed on mTOR for more than a year. And we do have patients that are very fortunate to get maximum benefit that go a long time on the different agents. The one thing we haven't done with her is immunotherapy, and I did try and refer her to City of Hope, where they're doing a Nevo study with PD-1-targeted therapy, but the window just didn't work for her. Fascinating. So why don't we go on and talk a little bit about your paper, Dr. Hudson, looking at axitinib versus serafinib. So the 404 study first was a novel, first-of-its-kind kind of trial in the second-line setting comparing mTOR versus VEGF inhibitor, and it was designed back in 2007. So in 2013, the choice of the mTOR inhibitor and VEGF inhibitor certainly would have changed, but then it was comparing temsorolimus with serafinib and to try to understand exactly what differences were there in the second-line setting. And it was in a patient population that was purely second-line progressors or intolerant to sinitinib with strict definitions. You needed to have been on sinitinib for a period of time that was at least a cycle to say that you were intolerant to it and these patients could have any histology, clear cell or non-clear cell, as well as patients were enrolled irregardless of nephrectomy status. And so it was a randomization in a one-to-one fashion of roughly 450 patients, and the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, powered to show approximately a month and a half to two-month improvement in PFS of one agent of the TEM over the serafinib. And the trial was well-balanced. It was accrued to internationally, and the results were that the progression-free survival was not statistically significant in favor of temsorolimus. It was numerically in favor, however. It came out to be 4.1 months versus 3.9 months with the serafinib. That was the primary endpoint of the trial, so it was a negative trial. Toxicity was, as one would expect, between the agents. I alluded to this a subset analysis which suggested maybe hints that TOR may be better in the non-clear cell histologies, but the non-clear cell histologies are not centrally reviewed. And the shocker to all of us was the overall survival, which was a secondary endpoint. And in that trial, we saw survivals into the 20-month range, but there was a 4.5-month approximate difference, statistically significant in favor of serafinib in overall survival versus the temsorolimus. So the conclusions from the trial were the primary endpoint was not met, that there was no statistically significant difference of temsorolimus versus serafinib in the second-line setting in synodinib refractory patients. However, there was an overall survival benefit that is of interest and needs to be further understood. We've hypothesized and others have about what could have influenced that survival and unfortunately the way the trial was designed we could not collect post-treatment and we only were able to do so in a small minority of patients. It was like 10% of the total patient population that we had their post-progression treatment and it was captured within one month of progression. And we captured who went on surgery, radiotherapy, and then what therapies they had. And in that small, you know, relatively balanced 10% population, there was appeared to be no difference in those who went on to receive VEGF and mTOR inhibitors. So, but again, it was only 10% and there certainly could be biases into that. And I think that's been the number one fact that's been scrutinized is that we don't have post-progression treatment. Again, in my mind, I think a four and a half month difference in survival is hard to explain just by one phenomenon. I think there may be something truly there. Even with, you know, the arms are well balanced, they were in countries that had access to other therapies, so it's hard for me to imagine that 
the post-progression therapy would completely explain that magnitude of difference. When you say something there, do you think more specifically about serafinib or just about VEGF TKIs? Well, about VEGF TKIs. I don't think there's anything unique to serafinib. I mean, if anything, it's telling us that serafinib, you know, survival is the gold standard. We're learning that as we're developing drugs in this space. We see that in other spaces, other cancer types where it's not necessarily about progression-free survival. And these early surrogates we use to help drug development move forward quickly may not explain everything. And focusing on survival is where we want to, I think, moving forward, especially as we start talking about immune-based therapies, which advantage may not be seen at all in progression-free intervals, but maybe more in overall survival. So serafinib seems to do very well in survival. VEGF inhibition does. And so that's shown now not only in the 404 trial that I just presented, but also in the AXIS trial with exidinib versus serafinib, which takes me to the other trial. So in 2007-2008, data was emerging with exidinib that it may be a very active agent. There was data showing progression-free survivals in the you know, 10-11 month range or greater in the cytokine pretreated patient population. At that time, the only data that existed with serafinib in the frontline setting was the phase two frontline trial with a 5.5 month PFS. So the decision was made to get more information about exidinib in the frontline space. And there was a trial that was recently launched in the Asia Pacific area of looking at exidinib in the cytokine pretreated patient population. So the study sponsor made the decision to modify that trial to make an amendment and add a second patient population. And that would be a second group of patients who were treatment naive. So that trial accrued in Asia-Pacific countries as well as in the U.S. Oncology Network in the United States. That trial was powered to show a very brisk difference. Again, based upon the data we had, suggested this would be a reasonable, but we were looking for what turned to be a 78% improvement in progression-free survival. So we were hoping that exidinib would show a progression-free survival of greater than nine months so moving from the 5.5 to the nine months. And so that turned out to only be a several hundred patient trial. The trial enrolled relatively quickly, was well balanced between arms, and the results were surprising to us. We saw a visible difference in progression-free survival. The curve separated nicely, however, just missed statistical significance. The exidinib arm performed at 10.1 month PFS. However, the serafinib arm performed at 6.5 month PFS. So the trial turned out to be negative based upon that and toxicities were you know as expected with both agents so the conclusion of the trial was that exidinib has activity in the frontline setting as evidence in the trial however it did not meet the statistical hurdle the high statistical hurdle of a 78 percent improvement and you know further study is needed and this trial was presented at the same time brian rinney was presenting his phase two frontline trial of dose escalated exidinib suggesting even greater progression free survivals in that 14 15 month space and just and, to be and a clear, phase two setting. that was not done in your trial? No. Well, we did dose escalation as part of the product label. So that would tell that patients who had grade two or less toxicity were allowed to be escalated up to the seven or the 10 milligram dose and also could be dosed down. So that was also part of our original schema. But in his phase two trial, that trial, which clearly probably had a different patient population in it, showed even a greater progression-free survival than our trial. And so I guess the take-home point from that is that we just missed statistical significance. Clearly, many of us in this room who've used the drug were wanting to see strong data in the frontline setting because we felt that it would provide an option to our patients there of a drug that was as good as or maybe better in efficacy and maybe more tolerable, but the trial did not show that. And it's been scrutinized because of the high statistical hurdle. 
And I'll just point to what my colleague Dave McDermott had mentioned earlier that as a field though, we should be demanding these type of improvement trials. To have, you know, I was thinking to myself, well boy, Exidnib just missed, I mean, people have done calculations that if we would have put 10 more patients on the trial, it would have potentially made uh, positive. But then you have to ask yourself, we would have been left with a drug in the frontline setting with a PFS of 10 months, and we know the other PFSs with our other agents, would that really have helped us move the field forward? What we really need is the 70 to 80% improvement in progression-free survival. We need that difference moving PFS from the 11 month where it's at now with snidinib and pazopinib to the 13, 14, 15 months to really move the field forward. So at the end of the day, you know, that's the result. So it was discouraging, not sure what's going to happen in the frontline setting with exidinib, but right now we're happy to use it second line. Okay, I want to go on to high-dose IL-2, but there is one question I meant to ask before. I'll ask Dr. Stadler. We were talking about the issue of reintroducing a VEGF TKI like sunitinib. What about reintroducing an mTOR inhibitor? We've not had a lot of experience in terms of doing that, in part because we have several you know, VEGF pathway inhibitors to use and keep going back to them. I think in part it's really due to what Bob Figlin said that it seems to be much more a VEGF-driven tumor, and our, aside from the rare, you know, long-term responders, the majority of patients who are on these mTOR inhibitors really have a very brief duration of benefit, so we've tried not, we've generally not done that. I was just thinking about your lady, I mean, fortunately she's in a great response right now, but she did have a long response to Everolimus, and down the line, would you think about restarting it? I potentially would. We're now in a situation where with two VEGF therapies, she's had a near complete response. So I think that's what's dramatic. When I bookmark a patient who's had mTOR as a particular responder, it's when I see a partial response, which is not common with mTOR, rather than necessarily a long-term disease control. This lady really didn't have very much change in her lesions for more than a year she was on mTOR inhibition. And so that could be just the VEGF side of the mTOR. There could be some added effect through some of the other pathways. I don't think we really know. So in her case, I'd say, well, we could go back to mTOR, but I'm much more inclined the next time we need to make a therapeutic change, and I don't know when that's going to be to go with another VEGF TKI. I might go back to sunitinib. She did have some side effects. I might look at exitinib, pazopinib, or serafinib. So I want to move on to another approved agent in terms of trying to get everything out on the table, which is high-dose IL-2. And Dr. Figlin, you had an interesting patient we'd like to hear about. So the patient's a 57-year-old male who presented with a seven-centimeter right renal mass and bilateral pulmonary nodules measuring about one to one and a half centimeters, whose comorbid disease included adult-onset diabetes well-controlled, hypertension well-controlled, staging including of the brain, chest, abdomen, and pelvis revealed no other findings, laboratory with a creatinine of 0.9, otherwise normal, who underwent a cytoreductive nephrectomy revealing clear cell carcinoma with 5% sarcomatoid features. We then had a discussion about treatment alternatives and this was before the TKI era. And he then went on to high-dose interleukin-2, receiving four treatment cycles, having a 90% decrease in the size of his bilateral lung mets, and then was followed expectantly. So what's the follow-up on him? So the follow-up is that we followed him, and we were happy to see him on a regular basis. And 10 years later, he came in with altered mental status, and he had a solitary lesion to his brain 
no other evidence of disease elsewhere, which was surgically resected, and he now remains free of disease for 12 years. Wow. So, Dr. McDermott, any thoughts about this patient and this story? Well, this is the kind of story that gets folks excited about the potential of immune therapy for solid tumors. Unfortunately, it's over the years, it's not been that common a story. Needless to say, what we've been trying to do, and Bob, both Mozart and Figlin have been involved in this, is trying to identify folks who are more likely to be in this long-term home run kind of benefit group. Over the years, the application of IL-2 has probably decreased as far as the number of centers and the number of patients getting IL-2, but the response rates have improved in large part because we're getting better at identifying patients who are not likely to respond to the treatment. So that's patients with, say, non-clear cell tumors, which is something that Bob Mozer, you know, taught us from the interferon days. Patients who have their primary tumor in place are also less likely to be getting IL-2. And obviously these newer therapies are having some impact in who the community will send for IL-2. Now they have options. They're probably not sending us as many poor risk patients as they did in the past. But this case points out that in select patients, you can see dramatic benefit that can last for years, a true remission of the cancer, which is really what the patient is looking for. You know, the questions going forward is, A, how can we do better at identifying these patients beforehand? B, how can we get this long-term benefit with less toxic strategies? We're probably doing better with B than with A. You know, Mike Atkins and our group has spent a lot of time trying to confirm early findings from Dr. Figlin's group at UCLA suggesting there were certain tumor features that predicted benefit for immune therapy beyond non-clear cell histology, whether there are certain clear cell patients that were benefiting the thought was maybe carbonic anhydrous 9, which is expressed on clear cell cancers, might predict benefit. Patients with high CA9 were thought to be more likely to benefit. We spent time trying to confirm that finding, a retrospective finding in a prospective trial. Our prospective trial was unable to confirm that benefit. You could look at several reasons why that might not have been the case. But right now, we don't have a great pre-treatment marker to say, you know, this person should definitely get the treatment so we can enrich the population of patients who should get these agents. Any comment on this paper as presented at ASCO looking at PDL1 and PDL3? This is from our group, and it's sort of, you know, when we were unable to confirm the carbonic anhydrase 9 story in IL-2 patients, we started looking for other potential predictors, and we focused initially on the tumor markers, and now we're focusing a little bit on markers that may impact the tumor's relationship with the host. And PDL1 may be one of those markers. PDL1 is something that's expressed on kidney cancer. It's probably a defense, we think, potentially a defense mechanism of the tumor, sort of like a barbed wire, sort of deleting the impact of invading T cells on the tumor, allowing it to escape. It's been associated with more aggressive presentation, worse survival. So we just asked the question does this? impact outcome to IL-2, and obviously it's a retrospective study, only part of the select trial, only about 120 patients, but it suggested that if you had PDL one on your tumor, PDL 3 on your tumor, you were actually more likely to benefit from IL-2 than not, which was sort of a surprising finding and something that would be associated with poor outcome in general and might be used as a defense against T-cells. You might say, well, why would this be actually something that might be predictive of benefit? Well, obviously this is a retrospective study 
would need to be confirmed. But I think the theory of why this might be associated with a response to immune therapy in general is that for a tumor to be PDL1 positive, maybe it has to be recognized by the immune system. So the immune system, the T cells are getting to the tumor number one and they're surrounding it, and then PDL1 is being used as this sort of defense, as this sort of barbed wire. So maybe what we're just detecting is what's called an inflamed tumor, a tumor that's generating an immune response. And it's conceivable that in that setting, immune therapies may be more active. And this has been shown in a variety of other tumor types, particularly in melanoma. And this has also been seen in the, and we talked about earlier, these checkpoint inhibitor trials, that if your tumor is expressing PD-L1, you're probably more likely to respond to either a PD-1 or PD-L1 antibody. So it sort of just fills out that story a little bit more. Dr. Moser, any comment about this history here in terms of having this very delayed brain met? And what have you seen in this regard, these kinds of isolated METs after high-dose IL-2? Well, I think it's a phenomenon we see across the board in cancer therapy where when there's an effective therapy that's developed, patients go into remission, they have late relapses in sanctuary sites. So we saw it with bladder cancer and MVAC therapy where patients were progressing in brain. And in point of fact, I'm seeing it more in the RCC population who are treated with TKIs, where they have good systemic control of their disease, but later on in their course, there seems to be a high proportion of patients who are developing brain metastasis. So Dr. McDermott, does it make sense that the brain would be a sanctuary in terms of high-dose IL-2? I've heard people talking about the new checkpoint inhibitors and immune therapies maybe being effective in the CNS. What about high-dose IL-2? Well, it's not a lot of study, in part because hydrocyl 2 could be potentially harmful in the setting of brain mets. You know, it creates edema in a variety of different parts of the body. Obviously, edema in the setting of brain mets could be a problem. So patients with known brain mets have typically been excluded from years of IL-2 trials. So we don't really know how active IL-2 is in the brain. We generally think of it as less active, but that just may be it's not that active a drug. It hasn't really been formally studied. That said, as you mentioned, the checkpoint inhibitors in the case of CTLA-4 blockade and ipilimumab have actually been studied in patients with active brain mets in melanoma. And while it's a just a phase two trial, there are clinical activity with these agents. So we get the sense that activated T-cells can get into the brain, but a common failure site for IL-2 patients in both melanoma and kidney cancer is the brain. So Dr. Mozer, I actually wanted to go on to another case, your 63-year-old lady. Can you present her? This is a 63-year-old female that had a history of childhood sarcoma who was treated successfully and cured of that disease, but she subsequently was found to have kidney cancer and underwent a nephrectomy in 2001. She had an indolent course and remained free of disease for about seven years when she progressed in the abdomen, and it was in the area of the pancreas. She had multiple pancreatic metastases, which we see with these kind of late relapses and which also seem to have a more indolent course. She was started on sunitinib therapy in January 2010, but she had quite a few side effects, including fatigue and diarrhea. She had blood count suppression, myelosuppression, which was probably worsened by the chemotherapy she received as a child. And she was hospitalized with a GI bleed on and Endoscopy, she was found to have an ulcer in her distal esophagus. So at that time, I stopped the sunitinib and we managed this medically. And she was followed with serial CT scans until she again developed progressive disease in the pancreas, and this time 
new lesions in the lung. I started her on Everolimus at that time, which was in September 2011, and one of her multiple comorbid conditions was also diabetes. And so while on the Everolimus, she was being managed with oral hypoglycemic. She had poor glucose control, and she was actually hospitalized in an intensive care unit setting with a hyperosmolar state that was a result of her diabetes. Part of the complication of this hospital stay was she went into acute renal failure as well. And what was that presumably due to? That was probably because she had one impaired kidney function to begin with and profound dehydration from the hyperosmolar state. Wow. Yeah, I, I was really struck by this case in terms of the problems she had with her glucose control. How rare or unusual is this? Is this something you commonly see? Well, hyperglycemia is a well-documented adverse event from Everolimus. The patients who usually seem to get into trouble, in my experience, are the ones that have diabetes to begin with. Their insulin requirement changes, or if they're on an oral hypoglycemic, oftentimes they are switched to insulin over the course of the treatment. So I think underlying diabetes is you really need to watch those patients closely, get good sugar control, and I usually make sure those patients are being followed by an endocrinologist. And in this lady, I mean, was she compliant and coming in and being followed and yet in spite of this had all these problems? Yes, she's fully compliant. And can you bring us up to date on what happened to her? So she was started on insulin with that hospitalization and followed by an endocrinologist and her diabetes improved. And then she was actually, we put her back on Everolimus at a lower dose, five milligrams. And she stayed on that with, again, stable disease up through November 2012, when she complained of persistent headaches and sinusitis. It wasn't clear to me that there was a clear link between the Everolimus and the headache and the sinusitis, but the patient was convinced there was, and so at that point we stopped the Everolimus and again followed her along with serial CT scans until she progressed again. And what's her current situation? When she progressed, she was treated with bevacizumab, she tolerated this poorly with development of congestive heart failure and progression on CT scans, and now she's receiving supportive care. Congestive heart failure, what do you think the mechanism was there? Well, I think that she had different factors for developing congestive heart failure. The sunitinib could have been a contributing factor. She had other multiple medical problems. And as well, when she was a child, had been treated with extensive chemotherapy including high-dose cytoxin. So I think that probably those are the factors that contributed to her heart failure. Dr. Quinn, any comments about this case? Well, a couple. I think it's, you have patients that are sick, and this lady had a significant history coming in. And the treatment of patients that are cured of childhood malignancy is an area that I think is a focus for ASCO and several other organizations and is often difficult. She clearly had medical problems that made management on the standard drugs difficult and we just see patients like this and we have to manage as best we can. And sometimes the kidney cancer is part of an overall clinical picture that leads to their demise when you couldn't have actually said it was due to the kidney cancer but the therapy we give and the kidney cancer contributes. Any comments about what happened in terms of her glucose? Oh, I think our experience is that patients that have a normal glucose homeostasis going on to the mTOR inhibitors usually don't have a very big problem. 
but it's more an issue of the person that has metabolic syndrome, maybe pre-diabetic or certainly patients who are diabetic, they're an issue. And the ones that are actually insulin requiring, the dosage adjustment is for some reason in my practice easier, maybe because they're being followed by an endocrinologist who just says, look, you know, your sugar is up uh, in the last few days, we're gonna change the insulin. For the patients that are on oral hypoglycemic, so your classic non-insulin dependent diabetes mellitus patient, I think it is more of an issue because often they're willing to accept a little bit larger range in their sugar. And when it goes up to 200 in our system here, it does become an issue as to adjusting those drugs and they're not in contact on a, a weekly basis with their endocrinologist. And so managing that is an issue. I think we've become better at it, but some patients are difficult to manage and you need then to add the extra involvement of an endocrinologist, as Dr. Mozart mentioned. Any comments on other metabolic problems seen with everolimus, including hyperlipidemia? Sure. So hyperlipidemia is an issue. It's usually mixed, that to say the cholesterol and the triglycerides are elevated. And we treat these patients usually in concert with their internist. We used to be a little more laissez-faire. We'd say, the patient's got cancer, we don't need to treat their lipids, they can come off their statin drug. Now, if the cholesterol goes above 200, we're certainly making sure that we optimize their statin therapy. And triglycerides, we have an absolute threshold of 400 for triglycerides, at which point we put them on a fibric acid derivative, and phenofibrate is one that we use in our practice, but it varies. There are different agents throughout the world. And we're normally able to get control, and we don't generally have to stop the therapy. The biggest issue here is actually working out how often you need to measure the lipids. And we normally do it at about a month, and then we do it at the time they get their CT scan. And we try not to do it more often than that. Dr. Hudson, you had a question. Yeah, just a comment that this is one of the challenges that maybe the community oncologist is going to face, which is maybe a little different than the VEGF TKIs. So the VEGF TKIs, you've got a side effect profile where most medical oncologists are internal medicine doctors and are used to taking care of patients in the hospital, so they have more comfort level with adjusting blood pressure meds and starting that, and even may even dabble and give people Synthroid for thyroid replacement and not involve endocrinologists, where it's a challenge is when you get metabolically active drugs and now you're taking the medical oncologist in their busy community practice and having them be a diabetes doctor too. And I'll just say that in the community setting, it's not as easy to call up a phone and get an endocrinologist to see your patient. I mean, they usually have a month to two wait. You almost have to plead with them to get them in early. And remember, these are patients that are developing the diabetes problem while they're on therapy. They Generally, it's an exposure. So these people have been probably on therapy for a couple months at least before it's becoming an issue. And your options are either you're going to handle the diabetes management by starting a sulfonylurea or if you're going to get into insulin using that, or you're going to have them hold their medication and try to get them to an endocrinologist. So it's a challenge for them to do. It's a challenge for me even at a kind of middle of the road academic community hybrid practice. So I know Bob has told me before he has a nice setup at his place where he has all the subspecialists there and he just writes the thing and they go, but that's probably less common than common. So I want to finish out here talking about the older patient. You can start out talking about your 75-year-old lady. Yeah, so let's start with the case because I think it's interesting and we all see older people and it's not just older people but it's sometimes older people from different geographic areas. So this is a 75-year-old female who came to us from Indonesia with metastatic clear cell carcinoma to the lung, liver, and soft tissue, 
having had a nephrectomy four years prior with a four-year disease-free interval with clear cell features. We started her on sunitinib, 50 milligrams, four times, four weeks, and two-week rest. Changed her quickly to a two-in-one schedule, and despite that, she had significant hand-foot syndrome despite the changes in the dose and schedule. We then, based upon some of our own experience, started her on serafinib, but a modified dose of serafinib at 400 milligrams a day, good side effect profile. Nine weeks later, excellent response. Tried to dose escalator, could never dose escalator beyond 400 milligrams, and she's been maintained on a 400 milligram dose of serafinib, which is 50% of the predicted dose, with very minimal hand-foot syndrome, tolerating the medication, and an excellent outcome thus far. How long has she been on the serafinib? A year. Dr. Stadler, any thoughts about this case? Well, I mean, I think that there's, you know, a couple of issues. You know, one is that we have to be a little bit careful with some of our older individuals, especially, you know, some patients who may have a different physiology. I suspect that she may be a small little woman, and if that's the case, she may not need a lot of drug, and I think we have to individualize doses. The other thing, though, I think that's important here is sort of this balance of adjusting appropriately for patients who may be a little bit older, but not practicing ageism, because we have patients who are in their 70s and 80s who are in good shape, who are otherwise good candidates for treatment, and we should treat them, and we should treat them appropriately. And I think the other part to that is, and I agree, I mean, the papers that we're talking about, both from Walter's group, our group, and Tom's group, are that I think the use of the word don't discriminate is appropriate. Modify when appropriate by giving them an opportunity. I think there's not a specific drug that is going to be more or less beneficial in an older patient population if you're using a TKI or an mTOR inhibitor with kidney cancer. And I also think that pharmacogenomics, something that we don't always talk about and don't always think about because we're pretty much all in homogeneous societies. In Los Angeles, we're not a homogeneous society. And when we treat our lung cancer patients with EGFR TKIs, we understand that there's a difference between a Caucasian and a non-Caucasian population. And I think our experience is also the same for kidney cancer treated with TKIs, and that is that not all patients from all over the world tolerate the drug the same, and one must be sensitive to the as yet unknown pharmacogenomics, even if the patient doesn't happen to be 75 years old. So can you comment briefly on these three papers we asked you to comment on? Yeah, so the three papers are really a conversation around how do we use drugs in an older patient population. So in our study with Samantha Paul, we talked about a large cohort that we've treated at City of Hope, and do patients at different age ranges do less well? And the answer is yes. Now, do they do less well because it's intrinsic that the drug wouldn't work? that they didn't tolerate the drug, that they didn't get the dose and the schedule long enough, it's a combination of all of the above. So I think for ourselves, we need to recognize that patients over the age of 75 had more comorbid disease, that their tolerance to risk may be different than a 50-year-old, their ability to tolerate and handle side effects would be different, but that as physicians, and in this paper, if you can maintain them on dose, they do okay. Having said that, in our greater than 75-year-old patient population, their survival was less. And is that because other things stepped in? Probably. 
So Dr. Quinn, a relatively healthy 88-year-old, as the patients get older and more frail, how are you thinking about the way you're going to tailor your treatment? So I think it's a question as to how you define a geriatric. You talked about the myeloma doctors saying it's 75. I have 90-year-olds that are the new 60, but I have 60-year-olds that are, you know, they may as well be 100. And the issue in the studies is we screen the patients out. We want the ECOG 0 and 1 or similar Karnofsky scale. And the intersection between performance status and age, I think, is very important. Now, we have data to show that maybe that's not the whole story. So Arti Huria from City of Hope has demonstrated quite clearly that some geriatric assessment tools are important, and we're trying to gel those down and move them into SWOG trials. And she's starting with some breast cancer trials, and we hope that'll move across to prostate and some other things. But when I look at a patient who I'm thinking, hmm, are you a geriatric? I often think whether they're thinking the same thing about me, but I'm also thinking, you know, there's a crucial period where we're gonna treat you. And I know from the geriatric studies that the first eight to 12 weeks are crucial. There'll be maximal side effects from the VEGF TKIs. And, you know, maybe we need to individualize the approach, see them more often, because they will not call you if they're second in bed they'll just stop their drug or they'll end up going somewhere else. So their access back to us is a little bit more of a challenge. And so I think that's a really important issue. And I just echo what Bob Figlin said. I sit on the Data Safety Monitoring Committee for Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and we are trying to get drugs into kids in a safe way, and it's very important. And we've had success with mTOR inhibition and certain pediatric diseases and some other great examples. We do not have a group of hospitals that treats older patients patients and we probably should be trying to do some studies in quotes older patients that don't fit into our studies. I think it's a really good point about the pediatric analogy. So actually I want to close out by going around the table addressing a question I meant to ask you before and it actually ties into this issue of age and ageism. I want to start with you Dr. Stadler and the question is in what situations would you consider high dose IL-2 and do you have an age limit? I'm not sure I have an age limit per se, but you know, there's some simple tests I think that we can do when we talk about these ageism things. You know, talking about some of our targeted therapies, our VEGF targeted therapies, I've learned from the geriatricians the word functional status. And functional status is if the patient can get up from the chair and get up on the examining table or has trouble doing that, then we have to be careful about our drugs. I think when we're talking about high dose IL-2, I'm really sort of thinking about their cardiovascular reserve. And you know, if a patient is out riding his or her bike and exercising on a regular basis, then I'm comfortable. If they can't do that, I'm uncomfortable. What's the oldest patient you sent for that high-dose IL-2? Probably the oldest would be in their mid-60s. Mid-60s. Dr. McDermott, can you talk about how you screen out patients for high-dose IL-2 and where age fits in? We don't have a strict age cutoff. People have looked at a functional 70, but there's patients beyond 70 these days who are quite active, quite fit, who certainly can tolerate IL-2. They're screened for cardiovascular function before they get it, so if they can pass a stress test, they can get IL-2. It's actually fairly rare for us to be sent a patient for IL-2 that doesn't eventually get it and get it successfully. Most of the screening happens in the community where people assume that unless people fit a certain 
appearance, usually like the general thing might be a 40-something-year-old marathon runner, is perceived to be an IL-2 candidate. We treat people 60, 70 years old and beyond successfully with IL-2. Getting back to the targeted therapy, we often, in 75-plus-year-old patients, those are the patients we're more likely to start at a lower dose and go up so that they don't give up early. So we have a different approach with those patients. What's the oldest patient at your center has gotten high dose IL-2? 76. It kind of reminds me again of the transplant story in myeloma. People say, well, it just, you know, it's not about their age, it's their condition. And we go, well, what's the oldest patient you've transplanted? And they'll go 74. So, you know. Yeah, no, this, this, this is a guy who's playing two or three sets of tennis who's, you know, pretty active. We gave him two courses of IL-2 and he had a partial response. He wanted more. So he actually went to Alabama to get a third course. So there are people who are pretty gung-ho. So he's IL-2 addicted. He seems to be. He went to Alabama for IL-2 or to play golf? Uh, probably both. Okay. Dr. Mozart, what's your approach to high-dose IL-2 in terms of age, and how do you select patients out for that? Well, I gave high-dose IL-2 back in the 1980s and early 1990s, but I stopped around 1992 because of the toxicity was observed in the patient population. The last patient I gave high-dose IL-2 had a heart attack while she was receiving the treatment. And so in my own hands, it seemed like there was such a few number of patients that benefited and lots of toxicity. So I stopped and focused efforts more on the clinical trials. So normally I have a discussion with the patient that this is an option that results in a benefit in few patients and offer referral to one of the centers that gives large amounts of IL-2. Dr. Hudson. Yeah, I mean, I think it's already been said so far. I don't have an absolute criteria for age for high-dose IL-2, but generally I'm looking at 65. I've treated patients, the oldest patient I've treated maybe 70, functional, and chronologically 72, so it's younger, acting 70-year-old, and they have to go through all the normal screening tests. And I would be, I'm always wary of the 40-year-old marathon runner because in my mind I'm thinking that they're not a good candidate for high-dose IL-2 because they have XP 11.2 translocated RCC or some other <laughs> thing that I'm trying to prove. So, so you know, I think you are, you, there's a bias coming into a referral center from the community oncology practices with it that probably drives it. And then for the targeted agents, the data that we have from the pooled analysis, fairly from our own experience, has been that you can really safely use these. You have to look at comorbidities of the patient and somewhat individualize the therapy you're choosing for them, but you can get them to therapy, even up into their, you know, low 90s. Dr. Figlin. Yeah, so I echo my colleagues. Ours is probably mid-70s, but as I was sitting here listening, we exclude people because of age because we think that they're going to have unacceptable toxicity, and we include people because of age that subsequently have bad outcomes from the treatment because this treatment is still not optimal. So when you lose or have a mortal event in a 45-year-old that you've screened appropriately with for high-dose interleukin-2, you do take a step back and wonder because clearly what we don't want to do is harm people with the treatments that we give. And that's a bit of the vagaries of high-dose IL-2, even when you do all the things that we know how to do. Dr. Quinn. It's a biological assessment. The oldest patient I've treated is 71. We get a much less screened population in East Los Angeles than some of the other centres. So half of the people sent in for, in quotes, IL-2 are not suitable, even just in the first consultation. And that's fine. We get to provide a plan and they can go back to their community folks. 
And the age for me is one warning factor for the targeted therapies. I actually am far more concerned when I look at someone who's not Caucasian and particularly if they're traveling from afar. And just as at Cedars-Sinai, we get many people from Asia and we know that their side effect profile will be different, much more mucositis with the mTOR inhibitors, for example, and some other side effects, worse hand-foot skin reaction and hypertension with VEGF TKIs. Hmm, trying to think about that for a second. So specifically Asia? Oh yeah, and the pattern of side effects varies within Asia north to south. Someone from Indonesia may actually be a Caucasian background from the Dutch that were there up until the 1950s. They could be Malay, they could be Chinese. There are different sort of patterns of toxicity that they so, get. So Neil, just as a point that some of us know because we've gone to Japan before, but that's a country where when Sinidineb was launched, they hospitalized people for the first cycle, right. the wow. entire six weeks, hmm. somewhat for cultural reasons. Hmm. but then also because they had profound hematologic toxicity. And right. so that's a country where 50 is not the starting dose. It's more 25 to 37.5. I want to cover a couple more basic topics in therapy before we get into new directions. And actually, I want to start out with Dr. Quinn with a paper I asked you to discuss the double-blind adjuvant trial of CG250. If you could just briefly talk about what they presented there at ASCO and what you think it meant. So this was gerontuximab which you wouldn't have guessed from the presentation because it didn't get mentioned at all and we got the non-generic name. Anyway, the ERISA trial is a very interesting trial because it looked at giving an antibody directed at G250, which is a hypoxia-derived molecule in the adjuvant setting compared to placebo in patients with poor risk renal cell cancer that had surgery. Now, the particular antibody that was produced was designed and in the lab produced antibody-dependent cytotoxicity. So this is a little different to some other antibodies that we've seen, but it's actually meant to kill cancer cells and also set off some sort of immune reaction and a bystander effect. So in this study, they accrued and randomized one-to-one to getting either placebo, which would be the standard and being observed, with scans, etc., to a loading dose of this antibody in week one, and then 23 subsequent injections of the antibody given over basically six months and then observation. And there are some interesting notes from this study. The event design was driven by disease-free survival and also overall survival. And in order for them to get their overall survival criteria, they had to follow the patients for a long time. And so a lot of the events have not fallen, for example, through 50%. We're not past the median. And so from that perspective, when we're designing these adjuvant trials, we may have to wait longer than we had anticipated previously or estimated. The issue with this particular agent, which is directed to carbonic anhydrase 9, and we discussed this earlier as an interesting potential marker of outcome, it's a hypoxia marker. It proved not to pan out with interleukin-2 and is not proven to be a predictor of response to some of the VEGF-targeted therapies when we've looked at it in tissue retrospectively. But it's certainly overexpressed as a marker of hypoxia in renal clear cell carcinoma. Now, these data were presented at ASCO by Dr. Belderin. There were no particular toxicity issues. It was relatively well tolerated, and all of the toxicities were less than grade one or two. If we look at the cohorts overall, 
there was no significant difference for disease-free survival nor for overall survival with the agent. So it did not meet its primary endpoint. But what was interesting is some post hoc analysis. And post hoc analysis is always interesting because it will get you onto the podium at ASCO, but also generates other things. Now, if we go back to the UCLA data, looking at carbonic anhydrase published when I was at school in 2003, and while Dr. Figlin was still at UCLA, high carbonic anhydrase in localized renal cell cancer was not predictive of survival or outcome. But in metastatic disease, it did actually make a significant difference. And there was some suggestion at that time that it might have predicted a response to high-dose interleukin-2. As I said, that didn't pan out. Within this study where we had a directed therapy, patients that had a higher carbonic anhydrase score by immunohistochemistry did better both for disease-free survival and overall survival. So it does seem that there's some predictive effect of the expression. But in order for us to move forward with this, we would have to do another study and stratify for that and actually do a biomarker-driven study in the patients that have a high carbonic anhydrase score. And I'm not sure whether there's resources for that. So this is biologically interesting. I think that it indicates that carbonic anhydrase 9 is some sort of target in renal cell. And there are some follow-up studies to be done with this antibody, but also some other immunodirected therapies. There's a phase one study trying to induce a cellular-based type immunological reaction similar to CIPLA-CELT and prostate cancer to renal cell that's running at UCLA at the moment, just in phase one. And the other issue is, in adjuvant studies, we've got to follow these patients for a long time because we can't just estimate from cohorts, even really good ones like the UCLA cohort, used for their system, what's going to happen. The patients in this study, their disease-free survival and overall survival was 50% more than they estimated originally. So Dr. Mozart, where are things heading in terms of adjuvant therapy? What are the trials out there? When do you think we might start seeing some answers? And what do you see in terms of the future of adjuvant therapy in terms of the whole issue of where it's going to fit in in renal cell? Well, I think the first study was the ASSURE trial, which is the cooperative group trial, serafinib, sinitinib, and placebo. There's been several other industry-supported trials. The S-TRAC trial accrued about 600 patients and was sinitinib versus placebo. That's completed accrual. And just this week, the screening was stopped for the PROTECT trial, which is the 1,500 patient study of pizopina versus placebo. There's another trial that's ongoing in the United States, a cooperative group trial. It's the Everest trial, which is Everolimus versus placebo. And a study in Europe for serafinib. I'm not really sure what the status of that, if that's completed accrual or not. And one other trial that's accruing patients in Asia with exitinib versus placebo. So there's a number of these different trials with virtually all the approved targeted therapies. It's not really clear to me when we'll get an answer from these. I mean, I would estimate somewhere 2016, 2017, that we'll probably begin to get information regarding these trials and whether VEGF TKIs and mTORs have some utility in adjuvant. Okay, so let's move on and talk about non-clear cell cancer. And Dr. Stadler, maybe you can provide a summary in terms of what we know about this, how you approach these patients from a practical perspective, and maybe you can comment on the ASPEN trial. Right, so non-clear cell cancer is a bit of a wastebasket, and I think what's important, especially for the community practitioner, is that this does not represent one entity. 
in the non-clear cell group includes some patients who often, but not always, have a good prognosis, such as chromophobe tumors, and others that have, you know, absolutely horrid prognosis, such as, you know, some of our translocation tumors or our collecting duct tumors. And so I think it's important to recognize that this is not one disease and it's several diseases. The Aspen trial is really an effort to begin to gather some more prospective data on these patients in a randomized trial of an mTOR inhibitor, in this case, Everolimus, versus a VEGF pathway inhibitor, sunitinib, in this group of patients. And, you know, we've gotten some retrospective data, but really to look in a prospective manner, what is the response in a well-defined group of patients who've had some central pathologic review. From a practical clinical perspective, how do you approach these patients? I think that from a practical standpoint, I think that the collecting duct tumors are a little bit different and are probably more closely related to urothelial cancers, and those are the cancers that we treat with cytotoxic therapy similar to urothelial cancers. They sometimes respond, but generally only have short-lived responses. The others we tend to treat with the same agents. We know we occasionally see responses. In general, the response rate is lower. The benefit seems to be less, but you know we basically use what's available. So Dr. Quinn, can you present your 52-year-old man? Sure. So it's a 52-year-old man who at age 38 had a nephrectomy in Mexico for a kidney mass. We have no details of that. He then presented to us with a left neck mass 14 years later, having had no interval issues. The mass showed papillary cancer, which was TTF1 negative. We were concerned about a thyroid or a lung primary. The fact it's negative makes that less likely. Staging showed multiple lung metastases and two liver metastases. Bone and brain scans were negative. Before you go on in terms of what you actually did, I'd like to get the groups taken, what they might do. Dr. Hudson, what would you be thinking? I mean, I think we need to start lining up systemic therapy. If you, you know, usually when I approach someone that has metachronous metastatic disease and that's non-clear cell, I'm thinking about are they amenable to metastectomy always as an option. I mean, I really think that's a valid option for that group. If not, and they have more systemic disease, then you're going to have to move along the lines of systemic therapy once you've biopsies confirmed the diagnosis. And Outside of the clinical trial arena, you know, you're left with your standard approaches with this. And so we think the concern right now, if I'm right from what David said, is that we think this is a potential papillary tumor. It would be nice to know if it was a type 1 or type 2. And so I'd probably be sending that information off to a skilled pathologist for it. Sometimes that may take us several weeks to get back. Based on the disease burden of the patient would dictate whether or not I would proceed forward with therapy and the availability of clinical trial while I'm waiting for that information. There are CMED inhibitors and other TKIs that are entering phase one trials that we have access to our phase one program with Dan Van Hoff that we could use down the road, but wouldn't necessarily preclude him from starting systemic therapy now. And how does it affect whether it's a type one or two? Well, because CMED inhibitors for type one and type two is associated with generally a more rapid progressing course with the fumarate hydratase abnormalities there. And there's some implications whether you have a genetic-based tumor. So given, the, how old was this patient, David? Uh, diagnosis 38, but when we saw him, 52. So, you know, younger guy. I mean, some of these, we have an emerging kind of genetic referral program at Baylor. And so I would probably send them to see the geneticist even just to review with it. But it's unclear that this is a genetic syndrome for him. 
but I would have them go through testing anyway for that. And then sometimes I found it very useful to have patients get their therapy with me, but also I have them contact Marston Linehan's group at the NIH because he has a variety of different government-sponsored programs for non-clear cell histology. And I've had patients <coughs> referred to them and they get on the registry of the government and then the nurses there will call if they get new trials and opportunities for them too. So. So I guess to summarize, I think we confirm the diagnosis, we send it off for expert pathologic review, potential genetic analysis, and then based upon the tempo of the disease, make a decision to commence therapy with one of our targeted agents of which there's no necessarily right one to go with if you're having to just choose. So this patient's actually been seen by a genetic service at Los Angeles <coughs> County Hospital and does not have a diagnosable syndrome and has had extensive analysis. So what happened with him? We started him on Everolimus. He had a response that progressed at about seven months with new lung lesions and growth of other lesions. We then put him on serafinib and he had bad problems with hypertension and hand foot skin reaction, but had a major response in his cancer. The neck mass basically went away. He had 15 months of disease control and has now begun to progress again with growth in the mass, pain, and also progression in both liver and lungs, new lesions. So have you treated him or decided what you're going to do? We just got the scan yesterday. So good. Well, maybe we can get some more input from the group. Dr. Hudson. Yeah, so I think, David, that's an interesting case because anecdotally, I've had some benefit of using serafinib in these patients. I mean, it's not really been shown, and we've shown that you can really use any of them. But I guess since serafinib was the first to market, I've had just more years of experience using it. And so I'll often consider that earlier in a papillary-type patient than I would necessarily for a clear cell. Dr. Figlin, any thoughts about this case or this issue? I think it's an unmet medical need. I mean, I think that, as Walter pointed out, this is a basket of diseases. We're trying to get at them from the perspective of their biology and what's targetable. And I think that we all see a handful of them on a regular basis, but we really need a consortium approach to the management of the non-clear cell histology which has not really been established. But generally what I would do in this situation is exactly what was described. I would use either a TKI or a TOR, and I wouldn't be able to choose between which one. And I mean, I'm kind of surprised to see this patient having two objective responses. Is that common in this situation with non-clear cell cancers to see well, objective responses like that? Well, probably what's more common is that they don't respond to these agents and march right through it but then there's the occasional patient that has this kind of response that says to us, there must be something about one person versus the other. This is clearly the outlier and that's why we treat them, but many patients receive the things that we've been talking about and don't benefit at all. So let's move on and the last topic I want you to talk about is kind of where we're moving in the future, which I'm sure is the one you'd be most interested in discussing. I don't want to begin the discussion with anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1 Dr. McDermott, maybe we can begin by talking about the data we have for these two agents, including what was presented at ASCO. Sure. So for many of us, this is an exciting area, not just in kidney cancer, but for other solid tumors. And I think what makes it particularly important for the people listening to this is this may have impact outside of traditionally responsive tumors like melanoma and kidney cancer that have responded to varying degrees to a variety of these strategies over the years. These agents may be active in considered what have been considered immunoresistant tumors like lung cancer, for example, and maybe in GI tumors. If that proves to be the case, that changes the way, in my opinion, 
obviously very biased, but it changes the way oncology is practiced because if something can work in lung cancer, then why can't it work in head and neck? Why can't it work in ovarian? It needs to be tested. And what you see based on this early excitement is an explosion of clinical trials across the spectrum of diseases. That said, what we have now, we don't have a ton of information that's beyond phase one. So we need to you sort of put this in perspective. What we've seen in phase one trials with a number of different antibodies, so this is not just a nivolumab story, which is BMS's PD-1 antibody, but with a number of different drugs, what we've seen is major responses in a subset of patients with kidney cancer, melanoma, and lung cancer for the most part, some anecdotal responses in other areas, with responses that have been durable, that have been durable off drug which is encouraging, so there may be a chance at remission for some of these patients. We've seen reasonable toxicity, not to say these drugs aren't toxic, and some of the rare toxicities are very hard to manage because they're so uncommon, but we've seen relatively less toxicity compared to older forms of immune therapy like IL-2, as we've talked about, or CTLA-4 blockade, and we've seen the potential for selecting patients who might benefit early days. We may never be able to get there. It's a complicated story, but the fact that there's tolerability suggests you might not only be able to get activity from one of these agents, but in combination. So last year, it was all about PD-1 blockade, New England Journal of Medicine paper to Polyan et al. based on a 300-patient phase one trial, which really wasn't a phase one. It was sort of a phase one slash two because there were expansions in a variety of different tumor types that suggested tolerability, activity, maybe selection. This year, what we've learned is the story isn't as clear for the selection piece, meaning it looks like there are going to be patients who have pdl one negative tumors that can respond. So last year, it was thought if your tumor had pdl one on it, you were going to respond. If not, you didn't. That was based on a very small number of patients. Now we have several hundred patients, and that story isn't as clean. So that in some ways, is a setback for development, because obviously, if you could identify the patients ahead of time who were going to benefit, the chances of your phase three trial being positive and these drugs being approved is much easier. So that story is going to have to play out over time with much more research. From a positive direction, though, what we've learned over the last year is we have more active drugs. So Merck presented data with their PD-1 antibody, Genentech with their PD-L1 antibody. So this is not just a one drug story. And we've seen encouraging survival. So we have with more follow-up, we have patients who are surviving longer and staying in response off drug. Probably the other exciting thing about ASCO this year, and the last thing I will say, is combinations may play a role. Also in New England Journal, two weeks ago, Jed Walchuk is the first author looking at immuno-immuno combinations of PD-1 blockade and CTLA-4 blockade. Small study, two institutions, Yale and Sloan Kettering, so you have to sort of be cautious, but very encouraging response rates, higher than you'd expect with either drug. Now, increased toxicity, so this may not be applicable to the average patient, at least immediately, but not only will we see more responses, but the depth of response was impressive. So we're seeing patients early on in that study, within six or 12 weeks of starting, having 80, 90% shrinkages of their tumor burden very quickly. And hopefully, those dramatic responses will translate into benefit off drug. But at the moment, we don't know if that's the case. If that proves to be the case, though, we could see more complete remissions, more durable remissions off treatment. And what's interesting is you're treating the immune system with these drugs so that this is a melanoma study, the Walchuk, Mario Schnall study in melanoma. There's no reason to think this wouldn't be active in other tumor types. So it's now actively being tested in lung cancer and in kidney cancer. And the bottom line of this is if these drugs become drugs in lung cancer, 
then we'll finally have a real seat at the table for immune therapy for our patients. So I want to get on and hear a little bit about cabozantinib, but first, just to pick up on that point that Dr. Figlin made, Dr. McDermott, can you talk about your vision of how high-dose IL-2 works and what would happen in your mind, at least in the mechanistic level, if you combine that with one of these two agents? Well, sort of at a crude level, we think of IL-2 as, you know, a substance that activates T-cells, CD8, NK T-cells, and it's sort of like putting your foot on the accelerator of the immune system, getting these cells to do more. The problem is with IL-2 is it also drives regulatory T-cells. It's actually probably better at driving regulatory T-cells than it is at the other effector cells that you want to drive to the tumor. So it's associated with toxicity. It probably shuts off its own effect in some patients. There are limits to its benefit. I agree with Bob that we should be looking at different doses and schedules of the agent when we talk about combinations, but we might also look at different agents that work in a similar way that are immune stimulators. Other forms of IL-2, so for example, that are in clinical development that don't drive a regulatory T-cell response as much. Other immune agents like IL-21, anti-CD-137 antibody, those agents that are actively in phase one and two trials that may be more rational to combine with checkpoint blockade. I think all of that should be done. I think that's why the results of ASCO were so interesting because when you talk about making big leaps, the leaps that I want to make are not in progression-free survival, are not in response rate. It's the tail of the curve, you know, and to get patients to the tail in remission, we generally think of having to drive the responses deeper, creating more complete responses. We saw that with the CTLA-4 blockade and PD-1. We also saw that in a smaller study with GMCSF and IPI, which was a cooperative group melanoma trial. So the hope for those of us who believe in immune therapy is we can rationally combine these agents. However, it's hard to model this stuff in mice. These agents are much more active in humans than they are in mice. So we have to do the human trials and finding people who are motivated and willing to go on them is gonna be a challenge when there's other agents available, but there's hope. You know, the way I look at it is IL-2 sort of proved the principle that certain solid tumors could be put into remission, but we need to go beyond that. We need to have much more tolerable agents that impact more patients, and maybe we can do something with selection, because that's the biggest piece that's missing as far as determining whether a checkpoint inhibitor is going to get approved. It's which population do you test it in? If you knew right now like in the BRAF story, who was going to respond, you could sit here and guarantee that PD-1 would be approved in lung and in renal and in all these other places. We don't quite know that yet. And based on the current FDA guidelines, it may be hard for some of these things to get done. But what I would say to the FDA, if I could convince them, is I would say, let's focus on the tail of the curve. Let's focus on treatment-free survival. Let's focus on remissions. And to get there, you need to, at least right now, it's either surgery or immune therapy. It's the only way to get there. And that should be an approvable endpoint in my book. So let's finish out talking about cabozantinib. And why don't we start out talking about your 64-year-old man? So this is a patient who was treated on a phase one trial up in Boston. He's a patient with kidney cancer with sarcomatoid differentiation. So he had a clear cell tumor. He had quite a few prior treatments before he went on this phase one trial. He had had sunitinib, gemcitabine, everolimus, and another phase one VEGF receptor binding agent. This is Tony Schwery's trial that he presented at ASCO last year. He was then started on cabozantinib, otherwise known as XL184, which inhibits not just VEGF, but VEGF and CMET. So after all these prior therapies, he had a partial response within eight weeks of starting the drug. He was on trial from August of 2010 to 
March of 2013, so almost two and a half years, and it came off due to disease progression. In Tony's presentation at ASCO, obviously a very small study, only a few centers doing it, but there are a couple examples of this kind of story where we were seeing activity in patients where we typically don't see much activity, or we certainly don't see greater activity with the fifth-line agent than we did with the first-line agent. So while cabozantinib has its issues as far as dose and schedule and toxicity issues, it's certainly the type of agent that many of us would like to see develop because it may be something about this MET combination that helps us overcome resistance to angiogenesis and may also make these agents active in bone. There are a couple examples on this trial where they saw responses in bone mets, which we rarely see with the VEGF targeted drugs, and it's a place where the drugs often fail. So it's now an FDA-approved agent in thyroid cancer, and it's being tested in phase three trials in prostate and kidney cancer. I was going to ask you if this man had bone mets. Not that I know of, no. But we've had, there were other cases presented of patients with responses in bone. And I don't know whether you or maybe anybody else, one of the things I've been trying to tease out is when you see these bone scan responses, do you also see symptom responses, bone pain, et cetera, getting better? Yeah. Yes, you do. Have you actually seen patients like that? Sure, yes. Hmm. And I think, and but I not think in kidney cancer, in prostate, prostate cancer. cancer. No, I mean no. kidney cancer. Oh, no. no, prostate. But he showed images, I think two or three cases, I think a few cases, where you saw the imaging changes. But I guess they're too few for us to know whether or not they also cause symptom improvement. I, I suspect that a response based on our some early phase trials that we've done, response in bone radiologically with the sort of turn off of the bone skin, it correlates with a symptom reduction that's very significant. They come off opioids, not just in prostate cancer. And any, I ask everybody who's had any exposure to this, any theory about why the bone skin gets better? I mean, I think it's unprecedented as far as I know, isn't it? Well, I think that MET signaling is very important in bone, and VEGF signaling also seems to be important. We've seen responses on early studies we did with serafinib in prostate cancer where the bone scan was rendered negative. And so I think there may be something unique related to MET, but it also may have a VEGF factor in there. Whether there's something else about this compound that's important, I think we don't know, and we haven't tested it against anything head-to-head, and I think we need to do that so that we've got some comparative data. And what's happening right now in terms of the development of this in renal cell? There's a phase three trial. It's about to start at our place and around the country, comparing it to Everolimus in the refractory setting. There's also a phase two trial that they hope to launch in the cooperative group, comparing it to sinitinib in untreated patients. It's a randomized phase two. And again, both of them do not have crossover? I know. Anything else that you see happening in renal cell cancer of excitement that you know, maybe in the next couple of years is going to be something on the horizon we might see coming into the clinic? You've been talking about you know big leaps forward. Any ideas where that might come from other than immune therapy? Well, I mean, so Neil, you know, we've talked about it already, but the big leap forward that I think we'll have in a couple of years would be if the adjuvant trials are positive. I mean, that's what's on the horizon that we'll get data at first. And I think right around that time, we'll probably have results from these phase three immune therapies. So the way you can cure the cancer is in the adjuvant setting, right, is to add and cure people there. So that would be our best hope right now. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty and thank you for listening. 
This is Dr. Neil Love for this special Clinical Investigator Think Tank on Renal Cell Carcinoma.